get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Once again, they pick up a dub on the weekend to move to four and oh. Welcome everyone into BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN alongside Tanner Hendrickson, Grant Francis. I'm Alex Ferrario. BK took the day off because, you know, that Tigers team took a hard nosed victory against the Memphis Tigers and had to celebrate a long weekend to celebrate yeah. a Mizzou victory. And the Chiefs won like I. He may not be up yet. Frankly, we might not see him all week. Yeah, well. Mostly probably because he's got vacation days also. He might be at the zoo already. But if you see BK, make sure to say hello to him. If you see BK and his lovely family, tell him, hey, get back to work. 30-27 to 27 was the score against the Kansas State uh, team. Just looked at the wrong score. 34-27 to 27 was the final score for the Missouri Tigers that are now officially in the top 25. Ranked 23 after that win. 4 nothing. the final score in front of a nice crowd at the Edward Jones Dome in St. Louis. Look, I, I have no bold takes on this other than Mizzou did what I wanted them to. They won that game. Now, would you have liked to see it a higher score or a wider gap between Mizzou and Memphis to really get your engines revved up on a Monday? Sure. But you put up 34 points against an arguably decent Memphis Tigers team. Your offense was superb, especially with a dinged up Brady Cook. I mean, you're talking about another 100-yard receiving game for Luther Burton, who looks like a serious weapon. The first play of the game uh, was the the bomb downfield to score the touchdown for Brady Cook and Williams, I believe it was. But overall, Mizzou showed the boldness that we've been asking for. You backed up what we were wondering if you could after a really emotionally high victory against Kansas State, and you showcased the only reason I have optimism for this team this season, this high-powered offense, and you're not afraid to make big plays. So props to everybody involved because that game at the Edward Jones Dome in St. Louis following the victory against Kansas State, I'd be lying if I said you weren't worried it was going to be a bust. Yeah, it felt kind of like a trap game, didn't it? Yeah to the point where we were saying, you know, though it's weird to say this about a game against the Memphis Tigers, it was just a pass-fail test. And they passed. They were able to come away with the victory. That's a good Memphis Tigers football team. Like, it, I know they're not a Power 5 team. They're one of the better non-group, or the group of five teams that you're going to see this season in the FBS. I, I thought Missouri played well. I mean, they did exactly what you wanted to, which was come out of that game. Sure, it was a little closer than probably some were expecting. 
really it was kind of like a 14-point win. They kind of let that final drive occur. Like yeah. I, I don't read too much into that. Really about a 14-point win for the Missouri Tigers. And you're right, offensively, they look good. They're playing expl- – the, it's an explosive offense with Brady Cook. Luther Burden looks good. They ran the football well with Schrader. And then the defensively, I thought the defense looked good as well. So I think Missouri did everything that you wanted to see from them going into the week because I thought there was a chance that this could be a letdown game. Now – I, I would also kind of throw a little bit of caution at the next game against Vanderbilt as well. Of just because, course you would. Well, not, not so much because I fear Vanderbilt, more so because the week after is the LSU game, and that feels like a, oh, let's look ahead to that. So that's where I would be cautious. But I think Missouri did everything you wanted to see to, to the point of go in there. It's going to be a tough one. May not be pretty. Leave leave with a victory. Be 4-0 in terms of getting to the top 25 because of that, as you said, for the first time since 2019. And they deserve to be in the top 25. They've played really well early on this season. It it did seem like a game that could have been bigger, and that goes to Drink's comments after the game talking about, you know, some sloppy plays at the beginning and the onside kick that you, I mean, you talk about big cojones. That was exactly what drink showed. And of course they uh, missed that on the uh, offsides. I believe it was the penalty that was thrown. And then you fumbled the ball. You missed the fourth and one conversion. There were moments that you looked at it at one point, And I saw BK tweeted out too in the first half. It felt too sloppy. And that was the moment that it's like, okay, Mizzou might fall apart here. And then the second half opened up and they continued that high power offense. The question that I was asked by a couple of people over the weekend, T-Bone, was, was that a pass or fail game for Mizzou? And for me, if you would have lost that game, yeah, all the negativity sets in and we're right back to the conversation of up same old Missouri Tigers. But I do still look at that, even if they would have lost and said, okay, but let's see what they look like in SEC play because SEC play starts now. And frankly, the SEC isn't as scary as it used to be. But the pass side of it was of the uh, was the offense, because if there's one thing that Mizzou can actually get to nine, maybe if you're going to be real optimistic, 10 wins this season, T-Bone won't be that optimistic. Whoa, let's calm down over there. It's the offense. I I mean, if you're going to get excited about Mizzou and sit here and act like they can hold on to a top 25 standings throughout the season and maybe make some noise in some type of significant bowl game. It's the fact that your quarterback, who was dealing with a knee sprain, threw for over 300 yards and had a 90 QB rating with two touchdowns. It's that Luther Burden looks like one of the hottest weapons in the SEC right now. That's three straight games with 100 yards receiving. I mean, he's a weapon everywhere. And then you're talking about the running game that is a really good backup and some good wide receivers. You tighten up your offensive line penalty issues that you've had. This offense could seriously be a reason to be scared in the SEC. Yeah, I this offense, I knew the defense was going to be good. BK told us about that all yeah. year long. I, I thought this team would be kind of a resemblance of what Illinois was last year, which was good defense, and you just hope the offense does enough and the game manage. Brady Cook is more of a game manager than a playmaker, and you're able to win tight games. I think it's fair to start dreaming on what the offense can do. Now, Again, I, I would push back on 10 wins, but I think eight, nine wins is totally fair to dream about. I think if things go right, you can have the conversation about them being a contender. I don't think they're going to win, but be a contender in the SEC East. It's funny to think that the SEC East now has more ranked teams than the SEC West, which is just freaking wild. Some of to these me, rankings just feel like a joke, though, like Florida being ranked in the top 25, LSU being 13th just seems like a joke. Tennessee being ranked. Tennessee they, in the top 25. Their quarterback can't yeah. hit the... 
A barn. A barn. A yeah, barn. Dang it, I always just, just an entire cool. barn. You know, when you drive past it, you see it. It can't hit a barn. Yeah, but I, I think the offense it has enough explosiveness to where they can be competitive against most teams in the SEC. And that's where I, I'm willing to listen to the talk of nine, ten wins because you mentioned Luther Burden. In four games, he leads all receivers in Power 5 with 340 yards after the catch. On the season, 32 receptions, 504 yards, and three reception TDs. He's a difference maker. And this Missouri offense is much more explosive than that Illinois team from last year. Because Illinois last year was totally a game-managing team where Tommy DeVito, all he had to do was, okay, we're going to hand the ball off to Chase Brown, he's going to set the tone, and then he's going to set up play action, and we're going to kind of rinky-dink our way down the field, and our defense is going to play really well. That's not the case for Missouri. Missouri has the explosive plays, as you saw this weekend against Memphis. I think they have a much higher ceiling than what that Illinois team had last year, and that's the team I thought they were going to resemble going into this season. Uh, look, I, I know the Kansas State is a really good team, and then what they did with them. I know Memphis isn't a highly touted team, but look, they got a decent defense, and they came in with a 3-0 and record. You put 30-plus points up on both of those teams. And I, I look at Kansas State as having a really good defense. And you put up 30 points. And that's not just 30 points of you know trash time. That's 30 competitive points where Luther Burden was the star. Brady Cook was dealing with his injuries. They have other weapons that we just don't talk as much about. Luther Burden, of course, takes a lot of the spotlight. When when you talk about matchups against Vanderbilt, which they've got this weekend, when you go up against LSU, when you go up against Kentucky, Florida, Tennessee, those are games that the offense is going to lead you to success. And when you're this high powered, this is why I was clamoring for that. Those big, bold moves by Eli Drinkowitz and the play calls in that K-State game, because up until it, it was what you just mentioned with Illinois. It was just run the ball and then maybe throw a little jet sweep to Luther Burden every once in a while. Now we're seeing these guys go 30, 40 yards downfield in the opening drive to set the tone. And, and I'll say this, too. You mentioned some of the games they've got coming up here in the SEC. And we always, when we talk about the schedule, you know, we would typically look at Kentucky, South Carolina, Arkansas, kind of as swing games for Missouri. They can't be swing games now. Yeah. Now that you're in the top 25, yep. and it's well-deserved at 4-0, those cannot be swing games. The Kentucky game, South Carolina, Arkansas, Vandy, Vanderbilt. should have never been in this conversation. It's even a swing game. But those four games, those need to be wins. And I know that going to Kentucky, that's going to be tough. Going on the road to Arkansas in the rivalry game in the final game of the year is going to be tough. That should not be viewed as a swing game. That should be viewed as we need to go there, we need to do our business, and we've got to walk out of there with a win. The games that are going to be swing games are Tennessee and Florida because I think LSU, Georgia, they're not going to be favored in those. Yeah, There's a conversation to be had between Tennessee and Florida. Two games that you're going to have at home, those are the swing games for this season. If they're going to win nine, ten games, it's going to be those games are the ones that determine And that's that. why I said ten wins for this team. And I'm getting really optimistic there because I think after what I've seen in these last two games for Mizzou, you're better than what Florida and Tennessee have to offer. Now, maybe that changes by the end of the season. Injuries, of course, dictate an awful lot. Maybe Drink gets a little over his skis deeper into the season and starts to get too aggressive and it affects you. But I look at the two competitive games, or LSU and Georgia. And frankly, beyond that, this Mizzou team has showcased the ability to have that high-powered offense moving forward. But they got to do it, like you just mentioned, T-Bone, against Vanderbilt on Saturday. Because if you lay an egg there, now we're back into the same conversation we had going into the Memphis game and going into the K-State game. Yeah, and, and I think they're going to take care of business next week. And look, we've got, a, what, five days until we get to that point. Yeah. It just feels... Maybe it's because I know what Mizzou fans have gone it's through. The first road contest, BK, though, of the season, yeah. though. And here in BK, always tell me about the the scary stories as a Mizzou fan yeah. that he is. 
it feels like a trap game. I think they win that game easily, but, man, I could totally see it being much more unsettling than we're expecting. We really haven't seen them on the road yet. That's, that's going to be the other factor that's going to go into this one. I'll be very – do we know what the line is set right now for that game between – I'll have to check. We'll have I to have look at that because I am really curious what it starts at and what it ends with before the start of the uh, game on Saturday afternoon. He's Tanner Hendrickson, Graham 14, Francis. By the way. What is it? Mizzou is favored by 14. Oh, that's so going to drop by the end of the week. What? It's going to be like Dude, 10 we and a half. Go. We can get tickets as low as $8. Where's Vanderbilt? Tennessee, Nashville. right? Nashville, yeah. Nashville's a good time. <sighs> Been to Nashville. You remember the draft? No, yeah. I didn't get a whole lot of sleep. Yeah, that's fine. That's perfect. No, see, that's not a good time. You know what? You and, uh, you and BK go. I'll save my energy for a vacation with all of us until go. you go to Alton. BK doesn't even want to be here to work with me today. That's true. He wants to, he'd rather be at the zoo seeing yeah. um, giraffes yeah. than playing with what you, you right giraffe's now. giraffe's favorite animal? Long neck, long nose. It's either anteater. His favorite animal eater. is probably a tiger. No. 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 A zoo. No. Right? I got it, but no. No, no Granny. Something with up. a big nose. Maybe the, maybe a toucan bird. Ooh. Big fan of Fruit Loops, I would imagine. Tanner Hendrickson, Grant Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. It is BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN, our Air Comfort Service text line, 314-399-9646. We are back and live on our YouTube channel at 101 ESPN STL. So click on that BK and Ferrario link, and you'll be able to see our beautiful faces all afternoon long. Coming up next, the Blues were in action over the weekend. A little double duty action between the Arizona Coyotes B and C squad how did they fare and there are two specific groups that tanner believes are going to determine this upcoming season for st louis we'll discuss that and more next on 101 espm we're right back to the pk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn Wake turns, ran out of room, center shot, score! Kairou found the puck after he fanned on the shot, and a wide open Butch Davis rips it in. So a one-in-one record to start off preseason for the Blues after their split squad duties on Saturday. They beat the Coyotes in the early afternoon game at Enterprise Center, a 3-2 final score, uh, and then got shellacked out in Wichita, Kansas, 5-1, I believe the final score was in that one. But you heard Pavel Buchnevich on the call there, Chris Kerber out at Enterprise Center. The group was a lot more... Name recognition in first one, it had Booch, Thomas, Cairo, Verana, and Kapanen. The second one in Wichita, Kansas, had more guys competing for roster spots. But the part that got me was when we got into the office today and Tanner Hendrickson, the way I looked at Saturday's two preseason games was watching one group of players and dictating how those guys are going to decide the outcome of this season. And the groups that T-Bone was talking about were Thomas Kyrou and Buchnevich, who picked up two goals and I think it was three assists in that game on Saturday afternoon. And then the other group was Kapanen, Verana, and somebody that played in the evening game, Sammy Blay. T-Bone, explain what you thought. Yeah, so I, I think when you look at the St. Louis Blues coming into this season, um, I seeing the preview that came out from on The Athletic, looking at the projections, which, surprise, surprise, Dom's numbers don't like the Blues again. Um, but I, when you look at the projections... To me, there are two groups that are going to determine the fate of the St. Louis Blues this year. And we've talked about these guys at length. Group number one, I would call it the must-play-like-stars-slash-take-the-next-step group, and that is Pavel Buchnevich, Robert Thomas, Jordan Kyrou, that top line. 
if the Blues are going to be a playoff team this year, those three guys are going to be the ones that have to be like the lead, are the leaders in the clubhouse in terms of production wise. And Butch Davich, I think you can almost pin in what you think you're going to get from him. I think same can kind of be said for Thomas and Cairo. But for those guys, you're looking for that next step. Can Thomas solidify himself as that number one shutdown center? He's no longer the second fiddle guy. There's no more Ryan O'Reilly. He is the guy that is the number one shutdown center. Can he step into that role? Does Jordan Cairo not only just continue his production goal-wise and points-wise, but does he improve defensively? Is he willing to get back now more on back-checking, helping out in the defensive zone a little bit more? Because you can still score goals and be a good defensive player. He doesn't have to be great if he can just get to average or slightly below average. That's a massive step for the St. Louis Blues. So I think that line as a whole is going to have to be the leaders in terms of point production, making sure they take care of business if the Blues want to get back into the playoffs. See, the way I look at this is I don't think group one you said has much more impact than what they had last year. They're going to be deciders of this season no matter what. Like if you lose one of those three for significant time, season's going to be in turmoil. If Cairo continues what we saw last year and Thomas continues that way in terms of struggling on the defensive side or not that number one centerman, you know what your season's going to look like. Depth might help you get a little closer to it, but you know it's going to be an underwhelming season. Those guys have to take a step for this team to take a step forward. Group two is the part that I would say is as impactful, if not more than group one for this upcoming season, because if you don't have secondary scoring, we saw what last year was. You lost Ryan O'Reilly in terms of he just wasn't the same player. Tarasenko wasn't the same player. Barbashev wasn't the same player. Welcome to your second line. Those guys didn't match what you needed. So you relied on those heavier players to do more, which in result found yourself on the uh, other side of the ice a lot more times than not. Yeah. Kapanen plays like a first-round pick. And real, and real quick, group two here is what I'm deeming the repeat post-deadline hype group. The group that you can't really put in pen what you're going to get from them, but they are big X factors. And I don't think you can have two or three or one or three play real well going into the year. All three have to play to the level that I think the Blues are expecting them to. And that group is, as you just mentioned, Kapanen, Vrana, and Sammy Blay. Those three guys have to repeat what they did after they were acquired last year. If they can do that and do that over an 82-game sample, then there's that depth that you're just getting into. Yeah, I mean, you, you're going to have to have depth of scoring if you want to be successful this year. The way I look at this, and we saw a little of this, I believe, in those two preseason games, Doug Armstrong talked about group 1 through 6 of forwards and then 7 through 15. If 7 through 15 don't compete to try and be 1 through 6, then you're not going to have success this year. And what I mean by that is, the way I labeled one through six was Thomas Kyra Buchnevich, Shen. He's going to be in that conversation. I'd put Kapanen up there for how they view him and Brandon Sod. Those are the six forwards that I've deemed them blues looking at and saying, here's our one through six. Seven through 15 are guys like Hayes and Verana, guys like Neighbors, Torpchenko, Sammy Blay, some of these fringe players that are trying to make the team. You're going to have to see more from them this season to provide you the, okay, when Thomas Kyra and Booch aren't at their best, these guys are there for the Blues. Because if not, we're talking about the same season again. We're talking about three guys that provide a ton of offense, and unless your defense is elite like Vegas, you're not going to be competing much. Which brings me to the other portion of this. And look, there were a few other takeaways for me in this preseason games. Uh, Scott Perunovich, we'll talk about him in the 12 o'clock hour. I think he looked really good couple of other guys. I mean, underwhelming in that second game. Grant, you you and I were on the broadcast for that. 
I was expecting a little bit more from a group of guys who were on that fringe forward group that Doug Armstrong talked about, and it was more about the goaltending than anything in that second preseason game. But it's the size and physicality of the Blues. And this is going to be a dictator, I think, T-Bone, of changing the dynamic of looking at two groups and saying this is how they're going to have success. Because they weren't big last year. I mean, they still had the Shens. They still had the Booches. They still had guys like O'Reilly and Barbashev who played a bigger brand of hockey. But watching that first preseason game, and I I couldn't see the second one, obviously, because it was in Wichita. The first two periods, they were finishing their checks. I I mean, every time somebody had a puck along the boards, the the Blues player was driving straight through them. Sonny was probably the most impactful of all of them. No surprise there. Scores a goal standing in front of the net. There were a couple of plays that Kapanen and Verana uh, skated from behind, stick-checked, and stole the puck to create offense. And then we're talking about some of these lower-level guys that were dropping the gloves, pushing around in front of the net. They're trying to get back to Craig Berube physical play, not so much of throwing down gloves and fighting throughout the game, but more so making the other team regret picking up the loose puck. And that's what they had in the beginning of the Berube era, and they lost that in the last couple of seasons. And I, Thomas and Cairo aren't going to be that. I don't think Yaku Verana is going to be that. But you've added more complementary pieces alongside so that when players are on the ice and you get a mismatch, creates offense because of that physical play. Yeah, and I think you're right in terms of getting back to that kind of style. And Sonny is the guy that's going to really emulate that, as you said, driving through his checks, and then also going and parking himself right in front of the net for his goal in that first preseason game. But it does feel more like the Blues team that you would expect. When I, when I, if I were to say Greg Berube's the head coach, where they add a little bit more size, they want to play a little bit more physical brain to hockey. And I don't even know if it's so much more physical brain to hockey in terms of the hitting even as that, but it is the, what you said, kind of making teams more hesitant to go get that loose puck. Why? Because they can put you into the boards. Yeah. But that also leads to... The what we talked about last week or two weeks ago of kind of getting back more to a cycle game. How to get back to more of a cycle game? You play a little bit more physical style hockey as well. And I think that's the thing that they're trying to get back to by adding the size that you saw in the offseason. Hey, he's a big guy they brought into the middle there. He's not necessarily going to hit everything that he sees like Oscar Sundquist. And then that fourth line, bringing in all those guys, trying to recreate kind of that identity line and playing that fourth line a lot more than they have in previous years. Why? Because they want to establish some physicality. They want to try and get a little bit more on the cycle. And I think they are getting back more towards the Craig Berube style of hockey. Now, maybe that's unfair to say because I think Craig Berube could have adjusted if they were a high-flying team like I think they wanted to be last year. But... This feels more like the team that had success when Craig Ruby first started as the head coach of the St. Louis Blues. Well, and I think, too, you know, when it comes to preseason games, there aren't a whole lot of things that you can take from two preseason games, especially the first two. But I think if there's one thing you can take away, it is that, you know, one of the things that Kevin Hayes said last week on this show was that, you know, one of the things that he learned quickly about Craig Ruby and one of the things he likes about Craig Ruby is that, Everybody knows where they stand and everybody knows what they want from them as players. And it was pretty clear in those first two preseason games that physicality was at the forefront, finishing your check, getting in on the four check, all that. And it, it makes you think that the message was clearly sent to these players of if you want a spot, if you want to earn a spot on this team, this is the way to do it, which makes me think that going into the regular season, that's what they're going to try to get back into. Yeah, well, and I, I mean, I thought it was... So good that Sonny scored the goal the way he did on Saturday afternoon. I mean, he was parked in front of the net, deflected a goal right into the goal or right into the back. 
Nobody did that last year for the Blues. And now you had him do it. Torpchenko did it in the later game. That, when we talk about physicality, it's not so much, oh, you know, throwing checks around left and right. That's not what we're talking about. It's being able to take the the cross checks into the back standing in front of the net. It's being able to finish through and follow through with the check on the board so that the puck can become loose. That's the space that Craig Berube's talking about. And when you play that way, there's more time for you. And I believe certain guys showed it in those two preseason games. I'll be curious to see what that other group showcases Tuesday when they play against Columbus. And to that point, we saw them working a lot. We were out at training camp last week. We saw them working a lot on battle drills in front of the net. Something that, to your point, that physicality, that is something they're going to have to win both on offense and defense this year. It's not just an offensive thing where they did add bigger bodies. I think in part to go to the net and win more of those battles and put away some more loose pucks, but also to the defense work on that in practice as well. And we saw them do that, I think, both days that we were out there. They'd send a puck to the blue line, and what do they do? They fire a shot on goal when they have two guys go crashing into the net to try work on deflections fight your way into that blue paint and get get a body in front of the eyes of the goaltender. Yeah, well, and it'll be, I believe, the group that didn't play in the two doubleheaders on Saturday uh, that will be playing tomorrow night against the Blue Jackets, but the Blues are off today. They'll take practice tomorrow uh, morning, and then they take on the Blue Jackets tomorrow night at Enterprise Center. 7 o'clock puck drop. I've got your first community credit union pregame at 6 here on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, Graham Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. Coming up at 15, we've got questions and answers. Send us your questions 314-399-9646. We'll answer them in about 15. But coming up next, week three of the NFL, almost in the book. We've got Monday Night Football tonight here on 101 ESPN. But we've got some NFL quick hitters coming your way next here on BK and Ferrario. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast. Or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. So with week three nearly in the book around the NFL, let's hit some NFL quick hitters here on BK and Ferrario alongside Tanner Hendrickson, Grant Francis. I'm Alex Ferrario. We do have Monday Night Football tonight. Buccaneers and Eagles with pregame starting at 6 o'clock here on 101 ESPN. Plenty of storylines to go through after the result of yesterday, T-Bone. But let's start with the news that we just got from the NFL as the Chargers just lost Mike Williams for the season. He has a torn ACL. He exited, what was it, in the third quarter yesterday after a play uh, where the Chargers and Vikings had a a pretty close battle there uh, towards the end. But Mike Williams, of course, the number two right by Keenan Allen and a wide receiver core that's heavy and a Chargers team that missed out on being 0-3, now 1-2 in their division. This is massive for them because Quinton Johnson has not really taken the hype in this first couple of weeks, Josh Kelly, I believe, is Paul, the, Palmer. Palmer. That's right. Kelly's the backup running back. Josh Palmer has been getting more reps and snaps than Quentin Johnston has. So now you're losing a massive target for Justin Herbert. Yeah, this is a big loss for the Chargers. Now, I think it's not as big as if 
Um, you had only one or two wideouts like some teams do. But I, I think this is big. Mike Williams, I mean, yesterday was awesome. Seven receptions, 121 yards. Now because Keenan Allen and 200 receiving yards, which is just insane. But it is a massive loss because I'm not sold on Joshua Palmer now being your number two. You're right about Quentin Johnson. I thought he was going to be a lot better than he has been early on. Yesterday, just two catches, targeted just three times. That's not what I thought we were going to see from him in the receiving game. Now, they do have Gerald Everett, who's a nice tight end, but he's not a great number two option to go to. This is a significant loss for the L.A. Chargers. I still would say that they're a playoff team, but any aspirations of bouncing back from the 0-2 start and maybe being a contender with the Kansas City Chiefs, I just don't know if it's going to be there now that you lose your number two wide receiver. You know, every time I do a fantasy football draft, you know, you get to like round six through eight, six through nine, and not a lot of good weapons there. And you look at Mike Williams' name and you're like, huh, should take a chance on this. Why do I do this to myself? The draft, I'm thinking that it's going to be great. And two weeks into the season, he has his first good week and then tears an ACL and is out for the year. Seems to be Mike Mike Williams' repertoire with the Chargers, which sucks for him. Sucks for the team and sucks for anybody that drafted him. I, I will say this was a concern, not so much that he tears ACL, but when I think about the LA Chargers, it's always that their wide receiver core has trouble staying healthy. Always, whether it's Allen getting injured, Williams getting injured, and they never have backups. Yeah, and this is happening again with the LA Chargers, and it's a again, it's a massive loss for them. And we're just in week number three, but it was one of my concerns with the LA Chargers this year was. I know at some point their wide receivers are going to deal with injuries. I wasn't expecting a season-long injury, but it always feels like they're banged up and the Chargers end up suffering because of that, and now they're going to be without the number two wideout for the rest of the year. The wild part of it, too, is I still view a Chargers as a playoff team because now that, I mean, I I don't think the Raiders are any good. I know that the Broncos aren't any good. Like, the Chargers are the second-best team in the AFC West, and right now for how the AFC is going, I think the Chargers are going to be better than all of the other third- and fourth-place teams in other divisions, so it's not a bad thing for the Chargers, but man, you avoid a disaster by going 0-3, which is what their opponent did, and that's the Vikings. They lose that game, now 0-3 on the season, and I don't know, I, I heard it all week yesterday, or all day yesterday on the broadcast talking about you gotta avoid going 0-3 because this amount of teams don't make the postseason when you start off 0-3. I'm optimistic about the Vikings because of their offense, but let's be honest, it's just a fantasy football dream offense. Other than that, there's nothing about that team that says playoff contender. Like, Kirk Cousins has a ton of dudes to throw to. He has no running game. The offensive line isn't any good. And frankly, that defense can't stop the pass. So, the Vikings might need to start chipping out some pieces right now. Yeah, I, I think they're done. And I think you said it perfectly. I think they're a fantasy football dream that you love. Love the weapons that they have offensively. They're not good enough defensively. And honestly, the offense, like though they are great for fantasy football, they they haven't been all that impressive. Been very underwhelming. I, I think the defense, we, we knew this going into the year. The defense was going to take a step back. I think you're seeing that this year. And also, too, they weren't going to go whatever it was they did last year where they were like, seven and zero in one score games they're zero and three in one score games this year their luck is turning a little bit on its side but now that they're zero and three i get it that the nfc is weak so maybe they still have a chance but i'm very skeptical i i think you can officially cross out the minnesota vikings i don't think they're a playoff team this year. so here are the zero and three teams and tell me who you think out of these teams could legitimately make a playoff run the broncos <laughs> no uh the Bengals, who are zero and two they play later on tonight we'll see if they end up zero and three um, but take them out of conversation right now because they're not 0-3. Vikings, Bears, Panthers. None. I, I don't think any of those either, but if there was one that could, it would be the Vikings. Yeah. But 
you're dealing with an NFC that just who knows what's going to happen. Yeah, I don't think the Vikings are a playoff team. I just don't think they can get enough stops, to your point. They struggle against the pass. I mean, they've lost to Baker Mayfield now. They go to Carolina next week, so maybe they can get a win. But again, it's not going to get any easier for them. They've got Kansas City in two weeks. In four weeks, they've got San Francisco. They've got two wins that they should have on their schedule with the Bears and Carolina, but you're talking about a team that's going to be two and four through six games. Yeah, I I just don't see it for them. And they're going to have to climb up. Green Bay looks better than I was expecting. Detroit's good. I can't see them getting into the playoff Best picture. thing that can happen to this team is just be awful all season long and then draft Caleb Williams. I don't think they're going to be that bad. They're going to win games because of the playmakers that they have. But like, it's going to be tough to top the Bears and how awful they are. Dude, what a disaster. Are they the biggest disaster right now in football? I, I don't know. I think Denver's probably up there. See, I I take into the off-field stuff, too. And the off-field stuff with the Bears makes them a bigger disaster. Now, the Broncos, talk, speak about off-field issues. How about the fact that Sean Payton runs his mouth all off-season about Hackett and Tua and acting like his team's going to be the greatest, and then you let their offensive tackle, who has been there, what is it, five years, bowls yesterday? It's basically ishing on the team, saying, I've been here and all I do is lose. As much as I think the Broncos are a disaster, I think the Broncos are just a disaster in terms of on-field. Like, they can make a couple of changes and might get better. I don't see how the Bears get any better than what they are right now. See, I I think I would say the Broncos are a bigger issue, and I get it with the Bears having the the off-the-field stuff that was going on with the defensive coordinator and clearly don't know how to run an offense around Justin Fields. The whole reason I would say it's worse in Denver is because I think Chicago's moving on from everybody at the end of the year. There's not going to be Matt Eberflus. We'll see if the GM survives. It's not his pick at the quarterback in Justin Fields. But you don't he want to move on him. from Sean Payton. You just need to move on from... Oh, I don't think Sean Payton... Like, as much as I agree that Russell Wilson's been a disaster for the Broncos, I'm not going to sit here and pretend Sean Payton has no blame. They look pathetic. And who's that partially go on to? It partially goes on the head coach. I don't think. I think Sean Payton thought he could turn this thing around in a year, and he's finding out the hard way he cannot. And they are stuck with Russ. I... I looked up Russell's uh, Wilson's contract yesterday. Like it's like an eighty-eight million dollar dead cap hit if they were to cut him next year. They've got to stick with him for two years or really bite the bullet in a rebuild. And they're stuck with Sean Payton, who I think look as much as everybody thinks he's a great head coach. I don't think he's been that impressive in his play calling so far early on, and maybe that's partly because of his quarterback situation. But they are a disaster, and the Bears are too. But at least with the Bears, I can see them just cleaning house and starting fresh next year. I don't know what the hell the Denver Broncos are doing. I don't either. I mean, their defense has just as many issues, if not more, than their offense. I mean, they couldn't stop anything yet. They couldn't stop a barn yesterday, T-Bone. Well, yeah, they could. Those don't move. Yeah, that's true. That's They don't move in. Boy, the Miami Dolphins were moving in that game. Are they the best team now in the NFL? Now with the Trayvon Diggs news in Dallas and not having that elite corner, and I mean, their defense did not look good yesterday like it did prior, and of course, Dak dacked all over the field. I mean, it's pretty obvious that Miami Dolphins are the best team in the NFL and frankly should be the Super Bowl favorite from now until the end of the season. Yeah, I agree. As long as Tua stays healthy, I think they're going to be in that conversation. Is it weird that I'm curious what they look like when Tua is not healthy? Because, man, they've got offense everywhere. Oh, I think they're not the same team without him. And you who's saw their, that last year. Who's their backup? Uh, no idea. <laughs> uh, and you know what it means if they go to their backup? I can't say the word on air, but you know what they are. You're because they, they would be screwed. I They cannot win without Tua. And, it's Magic Mike. Oh, God. Jeez. Um, <laughs> but they are the best team in football as long as Tua stays healthy. Now, what was impressive about yesterday was I was very skeptical if they could be the same offense without Waddle, who was in concussion protocol. Yeah. 
and they put up 70 points. So now, granted, I get it. It was against the Denver Broncos, who are not a good football team. But Miami looks good. Defensively, I think they've they've looked pretty good so far. I know they had the tough first outing against the L.A. Chargers. Since then, they've bounced back, played pretty well. Offensively, they've got the weapons, as you mentioned. And I think they are the best team. I, I think they are better than Dallas. I think Dallas kind of fell back to earth. I still think they're a really good team. I still think Philadelphia is very good. I'm not as high on San Francisco because Brock Purdy's missed a couple of open passes early on here. I think Miami's the team to beat. I think they're the favorites in the AFC, and I would probably take them right now as the Super Bowl favorite. I'd take them over anybody in the NFC. I just, everything I've seen, and a lot of this is, like you mentioned, with Tua, I just, Dallas took such a massive hit losing Trayvon Diggs. I mean, he is such an important piece to that defense. Um, And uh, Philly's been, I just don't know with Philly. Like, Philly just doesn't give me the same vibes they did last year, but I understand that they've been dealing with a lot in the first couple of weeks of the season. And the Niners are great, but I would take two in that offense over Brock Purdy in that offense any day of the week. I think you mentioned the Eagles. I think the Eagles are going to get into this conversation pretty soon. I know the first two weeks have been kind of, they've almost been just kind of blahs the way I would describe the yeah. Eagles first two weeks. If they're blah now and they're finding ways to win and they're two and zero, just wait till the offense starts clicking again. We said this after, I think it was week one. Once you get to about week four, that's when all the rush should be knocked out from guys not playing in the preseason, guys coming back healthy if they missed the first couple of weeks. You start to get the quarterback in sync with the OC and the quarterback in sync with the wide receivers. I, I think Philly's going to be a team that can fall into this conversation here in just a couple of weeks. Well, we'll see. You know, we'll hear tonight here on 101 ESPN as they take on the Buccaneers. 7 o'clock kickoff, 6 o'clock pregame gets underway here on your home for the Blues 101 ESPN. And, of course, home for all NFL action all season long. Tanner Hendrickson, Grant Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. We've got questions and answers coming up next. 314-399-9646. Air Comfort Service text line. You send us questions. We'll answer them next here on BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe it's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. 314-399-9646. 314-399-9646. That is our Air Comfort Service text line. Also, our YouTube channel up and live at 101 ESPN STL. BK and Ferrario with you now until 2 o'clock. Tanner Hendrickson, Grant Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. Let's start with the 636. Fellas, do you think adding a few pitchers in the offseason is really going to fix this Cardinals team for next year? Uh, yeah, Few being the key word in that sentence that they asked. Few rounded up to five. Yeah, I was going to say few meaning two starting pitchers, maybe three, and then three bullpen arms. So, yeah, that's a few. Let's say handful. (laughs) Handful's a better way to go about this one. A baker's dozen would be nice. Yeah, I I think if you add, I think they need three starters and probably one to two bullpen arms. And look, I'm basically telling you, the wallet's going to have to really open up. But uh, the wallet's going to have flies coming out of it by the end of the off season. I yeah, it should <laughs> get those dust bunnies out. Um, but I I think if you add three starters, honestly, you could probably get away with two. I think three gives you more certainty and more depth with Thompson being kind of that six slash in the minors. And that <laughs> way, when you do go into the season, if Thompson did get hurt or somebody else got hurt, you don't have to rely on an unknown. And what I mean by that is you don't have to go. Oh, we just dealt with an injury. So our six now is TK Roby or it's uh, Michael McGreevy or Gordon Graceffo. 
You just don't know what you're going to get from those guys. So that's why I say they need to add three. That way, if there is an injury, you know what you have, and Thompson has the six. But yeah, I think if you add a couple of pitchers this offseason, they can get back to being a playoff team because the offense is good. Finishing top 10 this year is what it looks like it's going to. And most of the guys that we look at in this offseason, I know we'll talk about Arnato kind of having a down year this year in a little bit, but everybody else has played pretty much kind of up to expectations. It wasn't fair to expect Goldie to be an MVP candidate again. He's had a pretty solid year. There's a little concerns with him. You have Walker that in year one has had a fantastic year. Newt Bar had a great year, really solidified himself. Gorman had a great year, really solidified himself moving forward. So they've got all the pieces they need offensively. It's just going to have to, can you get enough to upgrade the pitching staff. Yeah, well, and it comes down to the guys that you're actually upgrading with. If you just go to that uh, middle market and act like getting three of those guys are going to make a difference, then you're going to be right back in the same spot. But if you do what the 314 is asking, we could talk some changes. Guys, if Yamamoto is willing to sign with the Cardinals, do you make him the number one target this offseason? Absolutely. If Yamamoto is willing to sign here, he's the guy that I'm willing to go to $200 million for. I mean, he's the he's the guy that we discussed spending the money for Nola or Snell. He's the guy that I'm spending the money on. And maybe I get bit because I don't know if it translates, but watching what some of these guys in the last couple of years have done in the majors, it translates well. And he's 25 years old and he could be an ace. So, yeah, he'd be the number one target. I don't know if he'd be my number one target. Dude, you can't target James Paxton as number one and say, let's go. Okay. Or Blake Snell. Okay. I, I actually, yeah, would Yamamoto be up there on my list? He probably would. I would probably put him at two. I, I think if, if there was a number one target for me, it would be one of Sonny Gray or Blake Snell. I, I think both have swing and miss. The thing that concerns me is the contract, and the contract concerns me with Yamamoto. But Yamamoto concerns me because you just don't know how he's going to translate here to the big leagues because you haven't seen it. At least with Snell, we've seen it. With Sonny Gray, you've seen it. With Aaron Nola, you've seen it. So would he be one of my top options? Yes. I don't think I would make him my top option. I could totally see where the Cardinals make him their top option, though, because he's going to be hes the youngest pitcher on the market that can be signed. And that would be something that the Cardinals, instead of saying like Aaron Nola, for example, where you go, oh, we're, we're going to have to give him six, five to seven years on a deal. He's going to be you get what three years of his prime maybe still in that contract of the five to six that you hand out Yamamoto most of that contract he's going to be in his prime yeah I just I look at upside there and I think we've seen the upside of Sonny Gray which is a legit number two and I would be a-okay with him being primary but he I don't know if he's ever going to be at an ace and I, I need to get and if there's not an ace available, if you're not going to get Snell and Nola's not an ace, at least get a number one. So I'd put Yamamoto as the top target and then Nola would be right there with him. It's like a tie for first place in Tony LaRusso's words, because those are the two guys that I think are going to impact your team the most. Uh, speaking of impacting the team from the three one four, who would you rather have long term Tua or Jalen Hurts? Grant, you want to start this one? Tua? Jalen Hurts. I think just based off of what we've seen from their careers so far, I'd go Jalen Hurts. Just not because Tua is not as talented because he is, but reliability wise, I mean, Tua can't stay healthy. We haven't seen him be able to do that. And while he's put together some really good um, games while he is healthy, Jalen Hurts has proven that he can stay healthy and lead his team to a Super Bowl and almost win it. Um, so I think I'd go with Jalen Hurts. 
I think I'd go Jalen Hurts, too, because there are serious still question marks about Tua's long-term health. Yeah, I mean, he did this last year. Yeah. Now, there are concerns about Hurts because he's more of a running quarterback, too. How long will his body hold up? Um, But I think I would take Jalen Hurts. You've seen the production. You've seen him. He can play like an MVP. Hell, he almost won the MVP. Uh, So I I would take Jalen Hurts. I think it's a lot closer than you would expect when you first hear the question. But I think Jalen's the guy. Uh, Jalen's the guy for me. Longevity of their career, I think Jalen is going to be at this top level a lot longer than Tua. And I like Tua. Um, I just, I said it last week, and I know kind of you and BK were both shocked by it, but I I do wonder if Tua's success right now is dictated off of the dynamic offense that he's got around him. And, and maybe that's shame on me for feeling that way, but like Jalen Hurts has that as well. But Jalen Hurts also has that mobility that creates more in his game. If Tua stays healthy for a full season this season, does that change your answer? It should because he's going to be the MVP if he stays healthy all year, but it doesn't. Like I, I, I just look at Tua and I think he's just... If you put another quarterback in that system, not like Mike White or a backup quarterback, but if you put any of the other starters in the NFL in that system, I think you're still seeing the same success. Like if you put Brock Purdy, take him from San Francisco and put him in Miami, I still think we're seeing the same numbers. And Jalen Hurts, Jalen Hurts does a lot with Philadelphia. See, I I don't know if it changed my answer because I do think Jalen Hurts is all around a better quarterback because he has mobility. But I don't. I I disagree. If you put Purdy in Miami, they they'd have success. I don't think Purdy's a good quarterback. I I think you're seeing that in San Francisco. San Francisco though can dumb down the offense enough to help Brock Purdy out. I guess maybe he could if you wanted to say that Mike Mike uh, McDaniel's is the same kind of offense as Shanahan. I I think you're sleeping on Tua and his ability. And maybe I am. He can because it'd be one thing if he were just kind of doing the dump it off quickly to to Tyreek, which he does do, and to Jalen Waddle. He can throw the ball deep down the field, though, and I think that's the separator for him is he can at least show you the the long ball. That's where I think Brock Purdy struggles a little bit is he's not able to air out the ball as much. Tua can at least hit you deep down the field as well, and I think that's why I would say you're sleeping on him just a little bit. Yeah, and maybe I'll be proved wrong by the end of this season, or maybe I think it's going to take multiple years of this with Tua for me to get on that page, which is what it was with Jalen Hurts. I had to see the year prior to him winning the Super Bowl or going to the Super Bowl, and then, of course, the Super Bowl year for me to get on board with this. So I guess I just have this two-year grace period for quarterbacks. Can, can I address a text on the 314? Sure. 314, golf is the most underrated player in football, and I don't know why. I don't, you know. I mean, he's better than what the Rams have right now in their quarterback. No, that's not true at all. Um, Jared Goff is one of those quarterbacks that has to have weapons around him to have yeah. success. We saw that. We saw we that saw in the that in final LA. year in L.A. versus, honestly, his first year in Detroit wasn't great. And then Amon Ross St. Brown. And then you got Jalen Williams last year. You started to get a running game. You got a more competent head coach. He's the type of quarterback that needs everything around him to be right and then you start winning. Yeah. Honestly, Brock Purdy and Jared Goff kind of feel like the same quarterback to me. Brock, yeah, uh, Brock Purdy is, uh, I've said this before, he's a Kyle Shanahan prophet. Like, Shanahan has made him into this quarterback. And look, I mean, the guy has been great. What, he's not lost a game in regular season since yeah, he started? Which, by the way, is incredible. It is incredible, but I, he's the type of guy that you pluck him and you put him in the Indianapolis Colts situation right now. We're not talking about Brock Purdy. That's the quarterback stuff, and or that's the head coach, and, and maybe that's part of the reason why I'm looking at it the way that I look at it with Miami and Tua. Grant Francis, Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Alex Ferrari. Appreciate all the text messages and questions. Coming up next, Scott Perunovich. 
was one of the few players that stuck out to me Saturday afternoon in the first preseason game. And I'm starting to wonder if his ability to make this team out of camp comes with playing with this partner. We'll discuss that next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You know, he could have the, you know, in a shutdown pair with, with Mikel or Scandella, or, uh, you know, he could, he's a great skater, and I could see him playing with Krug over, over the next few years, too. So I, I think he's multidimensional on how, how he can play, and I think a lot of his situation driven on, on where you need. Do you need offense? Do you need to shut games down? Um, you know, he, he can provide both of that force. That, of course, is Doug Armstrong, president of Hockey Operations. Uh, I think it was a couple of years ago on BK and Ferrario when we asked him what the ideal partner would looks like for Colton Pareko. And alongside Tanner Hendrickson huh. and Grant Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. We're still looking. We're still looking. And we're not talking about partners part and dating. We're talking partner on the ice. And we are still looking. Yeah. It was Krug. It was Mikola. It was Laddie. Scandella. It was Wallman. It was Scandella. I mean, we've gone he through. He played with Wallman at one He point? played with Wallman. Vince Dunn oh, was man. up there. We've gone cheaper by the dozen. Hell, I think Callie Rosen's gotten a shot playing with Colton Pareko. And I know what some of you are screaming at the radio station right now. Maybe it's a Pareko problem, Ferrario. Yeah, that might be right. Not after what I saw Saturday afternoon. And save your, your sarcastic, stupid comments. It was the Arizona Coyotes B squad. Look. C squad, actually. Yeah, it was C-Squad. B-Squad went to Wichita and just shellacked yeah. Malcolm Subban in the Blues. Mm, tough. Here's when, when you hear what Doug Armstrong was talking about there, somebody who moves the puck, somebody who understands the ice, understands kind of where the forwards are playing and can move the puck quickly out of the zone. Let me play you a cut from Craig Berube after Saturday's game talking about the way Scott Perunovich played Saturday, and tell me if this doesn't sound like what Doug Armstrong was mentioning as an ideal partner for Perico. I thought Scotty moved the puck well. I was happy with his... He closed some plays out with his stick in his feet, you know, defending the rush. You know, getting back quick for pucks, like getting the first touch on it is important, and then moving it. That'll be, that'll be key for him. Anticipating as a defenseman, you know, what the forward's going to do with the puck and where he's going to put it and, and anticipating that play and getting there a second early, two seconds early, that's going to make a diff- all the difference in the world for him. I get it was one game, and I understand that Scott Perunovich has to stay healthy. That's going to be the biggest thing for him. But out of all of the players that played in both Saturday afternoon and Saturday night, and of course I didn't get to see Saturday night, but we heard it here on 101 ESPN, Scott Perunovich was the one that stood out to me the most. Because of his ability to move the puck quickly out of the zone. I mean, we're talking about as soon as that lateral pass from Pareko to Perunovic behind the net, Perunovic was up the ice on one stick pass onto the tape of his forwards, and they were skating as a unit up through the zone. I thought Perunovic played well. As you heard Berube mention, he broke up a couple of plays defensively, blocking shots. He was smart in terms of his, his understanding of the surroundings with forwards on the ice. It was one game. I want to see a lot more of it. But if Scott Perunovich plays this way and meshes well with Colton Pareko, welcome to your way of making it onto this roster. Because Letty couldn't do it. Krug couldn't do it. Scandella didn't really have a lot of success, sustained success with it. 
They don't have a pairing partner for Colton Pareko. I am very curious when they take the ice again tomorrow if those two are together again because Scott Perunovic and Colton Pareko could be a match made in heaven with their offensive ability to move the puck out of the zone. Yeah, and I think he has been the guy that the Blues have been hoping would take that role as being the guy with Colton Pareko. The one thing that I just have a tough time, and it's because I because we just haven't seen it, and you were at the game Saturday, I was not, is can that be a shutdown pairing, though? Because when I think Scott Brunovich, I think a smaller statue defenseman, someone that kind of emulates their game after Tory Krug, more of a power play specialist, can that guy really be paired with Colton Preco at the top? And maybe he can. Maybe that puck movement that you said, and with Colton Preco's skating ability to get the puck out of the zone, maybe they can be a shutdown, but a just a, kind of an oddball kind of pairing that is a shutdown pairing that's at the top of your defensive unit and is in the defensive zone with their starts. But that would be my one question is, can he play on a shutdown unit? Because when I think about Prunovic, I think of a puck-moving defenseman, as you talked about, and as a power play specialist, more of an offensive specialist, kind of like Tory Krug. But can he play more of like a Justin Falk style game where there is that offense and he can play that defensive style that would pair well with Colton Prego? Because I think you're right. If he meshes well with Colton Prego and they decide, you know what, this is our pairing, we like this, which I I would still say I'm skeptical because I think they'll probably start the year with Letty and Prego. But if they do ultimately say, you know what, Maybe that is the guy that plays with Colton Pareko. That is his route to be on this team. Is That is the number one guy, but I just don't know if he can be on a shut, quote-unquote shutdown pairing. Let, let me ask you this then, and Grant, answer this one too. When, when you say the term shutdown pairing, what do you think of? Because I think the people's pro- – I think individuals' issues when they hear shutdown pair is they go back to what Bo Meester and Pareko were. And I hate to break it to everybody, but that's not happening again. You don't have the long reach on this team. You also don't have the physical brand of shutdown defensemen. Do does anybody consider Miro Haskinen a shutdown defenseman? I mean, he's, he's on Dallas. He's a bump. pretty good defenseman. <laughs> I know that. I, I consider him a number one defenseman. I, I mean, the dude has been Norris Trophy conversations, and it's because he's got seventy three points, but he's also six foot. And he's 24 years old, and he plays top minutes for Dallas. But see, I think if you're gonna if you're gonna fall into the number one defensive category in that spot, but you I'm gotta not call- be, you got to earn Norris Trophy. But I'm not votes. calling him a number one defenseman. I'm going off of shutdown defensemen in terms of guys that you view going up against the other team's top lines and the ability to eliminate them offensively. But also in that situation, his pairing is with Esselindel, I believe, who is like Pareko size. That's what I'm going after with this. I'm, I'm talking about if you've got a dude who is big, who has that stick reach, who does need to take his game to the next level. If if he can eliminate plays like he did with Bo Meester in terms of his reach and his speed, Perunovic can do what Miro Haskinen does with Dallas. Miro Haskinen is so good. Miro Haskinen, Kale McCarr, you know what they're good at? When the puck's on their stick, as soon as one of the forwards tries to push them back into the corner and steal the puck from them, it's already on the forwards tape up the ice. That's what he does well. And so when I hear shutdown pair defensemen, you just got to change your mindset in terms of thinking, oh, well, these guys are going to be tough to play against. They're going to cross-check you in front of the net. That's not what shutdown defensemen are anymore. You don't have a Petrangelo to be a shutdown defenseman. What you're trying to do with your team is shut down the opposition from scoring in terms of moving that puck quickly out of your zone. That's where Scott Perunovic thrives. It's just a matter of can he do it consistently. I guess where my concern is is, you know, it, 
again, they did this against Arizona's ECHL team this past weekend. Like, I, I understand. I, I, I need more. And, and I know they probably you know, could win the ECHL this year. They very well Arizona? could. Arizona? Yeah. I, I seriously like well, 15, that Arizona 15 squad. of those guys were on PTO, so I don't even know if they're well, actually on Arizona still. With all the draft picks they've had over the last uh, 10 years, they should be winning every ECHL well, championship. Yeah, I was say, we saw that in Wichita. But, I mean, regardless, for Perunovic, what I need to see would be when you get into a game where there's superstars and you're, a, you're a top pairing going up against another, another team's top line. And you get targeted because that's what they'll do with Perunovic. They'll throw it in his end and see if he can. Uh, they'll, they'll go attack him, and can he handle that? To be determined. And that's where Pareko comes into play, and, and that's why you have to have two guys that are on the same page. And for people that say, "Well, it might be Colton Pareko's problem," yeah, it's fifty percent on Pareko the struggles he's had with all of these partners. But the other 50% is allocated towards his partner out there, and it just has been unpredictable, whether it was Mikola, whether it was Letty, whether it was Krug. I, it's hard to build predictability in a game that you played together. So that's why I'll be curious. Do they keep them together? Because Letty was skating with Pareko in, in training camp the first couple of days. But if you really liked what you saw with Scott Perunovich, and Tori Krug is making progress, probably playing in an exhibition game within the next couple of nights... Yeah, I'm gonna, I might just keep that riding and see if it works because I've got two dudes who know how to get the puck out of the zone. And frankly, for how fast Pareko is, if Perunovic can get the puck out quick, we've seen Pareko act like a fourth forward on the rush and create offense that way. Yeah, to your question that you asked about what do you think of when you think of a number one defenseman, I do think size does matter. Now, there are some guys that are smaller in statue, but they put up a ton of point production. But I think having that reach, having that defensive IQ – is the thing that is going to be the determiner for Absolutely. Scott Perunovich. Because it's one thing to be a quick puck mover. It's another one it is, okay, how am I going to adjust as they're coming into the zone? How am I going to adjust because I need to make sure that I can box these guys out in front of the net and not get moved around? We heard the Craig Button quote of, nobody's scared of a Tory Krug in front of the net. We heard that in the offseason. Perunovich can't be that way. Does he have to be like Chris Pronger and just throwing cross-checks all across the ice? No, but he's got to be able to play a little bit bigger than his size and make sure that guys don't get to the front of the net. Make sure that he does have that defensive IQ in connection with Colton Prego to where it is. Okay, this puck's going to the zone. Boom, I do have to get it out quickly. That puck moving ability, being able to play on the power play. Though it was a good first game for him in the preseason, you're right. It is going to be a tough climb for him to get onto this active roster because I think the plan is he's going to be starting in the AHL unless he can really, really impress. And not only impress probably outplay just about every defenseman on the roster going into this season. Yeah, well, we'll find out. I, If I'm Scott Pernovich, I'm wanting to play in almost every single preseason game so I can make sure the coaches see all of what I have to offer and prove that I can stay healthy. They play Columbus tomorrow night, so we'll find out if Scott Pernovich will be uh, in the group that's playing against Columbus, which will be a much better group of players than what they saw in those two Arizona Coyotes games. Graham Francis, Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Alex Ferrario. Coming up next, college football was very entertaining beyond the Missouri Tigers and 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 the Fighting Illini. I understand, T-Bone. They got no, that big funny. dub against FAU. We don't have to mention them. There are a lot of teams that seem to be in this minutia of, are they real or are they fakes? Let's play a little college football contender or pretender next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
count that that big bang. All right, plenty going on, not just in the NFL, but with college football and alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grand Francis. Uh, somebody requested a college football roundup. Yeah. yeah. Okay, fine. Yeah. We won't do that. No, let's play a little college football contender or pretender uh, because there are a lot of teams that if you look at the uh, AP Top 25 poll or if you just kind of see where they stand, you wonder. Okay, this team could make a playoff run, or, yeah, this team's a little bit of a joke. So let's start with Alabama, T-Bone. Contender or pretender? So I'm not going to lie. I was absolutely shocked that they beat the Tar out of Ole Miss this weekend. I thought for sure. I almost took them in the pick challenge, Ole Miss, on the points. Well, don't worry, buddy. You got those wrong still, too. I'm still going to say pretender on Alabama. Yeah. I. I just don't trust their offense. Defensively, they're great. And look, Nick Saban's gotten to the playoff with a great defense before. I have no faith in their offense. I They can't, heading into that game, they struggled to block on the pass. I don't think at quarterback, Milrow is a massive difference maker. Now, he can use his legs, which helps out a little bit, but he's not a threat to me offensively. So I'm going to say pretender. I, I don't think that they're a true playoff caliber team and that one loss against Texas is definitely going to hurt them. Grant, listen, I'm an Alabama guy, but I'm going to I'm going to go pretender too. Like that Texas game, Jalen Miller was pressured 49% of the time when he dropped back. And you just mentioned the problems they had on the O-line. Like that's not going to work in the SEC. You get towards the end of the season and I mean, I don't even think they're going to be talking about an SEC championship game this season. But if you are and you're going into a game like that, you cannot have a bad O-line. And especially with a freshman quarterback, it's just not a recipe for success. Yeah, it's pretender. I mean, look, Alabama's got all of the street cred that you can ask for, but their offense isn't good. Anytime you've got your coach, Nick Saban, who doesn't do this, going back and forth with quarterbacks in the first three weeks of the season, it tells you everything you need to know. Like, he's not confident in it. Defensively, I think they're fine. Offensively, when they go up against the the top dogs, you're talking about giving up 34 points to Texas and you only scoring 24. So I'm saying pretender here. Let's go with the Utah Utes. Uh, Utah, who had, what was that matchup? It was against uh, UCLA. That was not very entertaining, to say the least. What was it, 14-7, something yeah. like that? Uh, but Utah is ranked 10th right now, uh, and the Pac-12 stands strong. Pretender or contender? I mean, I'm torn on them because they did not have Rising again. And I think when they get him back, they are a contender because defensively they are awesome. They scored seven of those points. That should have been a 7-7 game going to overtime if it wasn't out for their defense. I'm going to say contender, but I say that very cautiously because when they get rising back, we'll see what the offense looks like, and their schedule is a gauntlet still. They've got USC on the road, Oregon at home, at Washington, and home against, though Colorado's not ranked and kind of laid a dud this weekend, Colorado's still a decent football team. And not to mention they've got Oregon State on a short week this week on the road. I'm going to say contender, though. I think when rising comes back, they become a playoff threat. I think you could be very right when rising comes back. I'm still going to say pretender until they prove it. I, I wasn't big on Utah last season when a lot of people were, and they ended up falling off towards the end. Uh, I, I definitely see what you're saying with rising coming back. They could really take that next step, but gosh, you only put up 14 points against UCLA outside of that. They really haven't played anybody aside from Florida, but we've all talked about how they're not really that good this season. So, yeah, I, I, I'm still going to stick with Pretender on Utah. I'll call them Contender, but that could be swayed real quickly. When I see a game with their quarterback, 
I'll believe. Now that I watched Oregon just dominate, Oregon's kind of one of those top dogs we're talking about here, specifically when we're going into the Big Ten. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll give them contender right now, but I think that can be swayed to pretender. Let's do a couple of more of our college football contender or pretender. Let's go with Ohio State. Uh, Ohio State, a late victory. And T-Bone, I got to be honest with you, my man. I was rooting for this one. I was rooting for that touchdown yeah, against I Notre, had Dame. Notre Dame. You're right. Plus three. I don't even like Ohio State. And then once you hear Ryan Day go off and start throwing Lou Holtz under the bus over him talking about the team, um, but I was rooting for that one. Ohio State, though, that that is a big victory for them, like it or not. And Ohio State now is top four, ranked number four behind Texas, Michigan, and Georgia. Uh, contender or pretender? I'm still saying pretender. I was not impressed with them offensively. And look, Notre Dame's got a good defense. I, they've got so many weapons at Ohio State, yet somehow they are barely, I don't want to say barely four, no. They escaped that game against Notre Dame, and they've not looked that impressive through four games. I'm still saying pretender. I, in fact, think it's ridiculous that they are ranked ahead of Florida State. Florida State beat Clemson, remained perfect on the year. And I get it, Ohio State's perfect as well. But Ohio State was not nearly as impressive offensively as Florida State was against a decent Clemson defense. I actually think Ohio State should be behind Washington at the eighth spot. So I'm saying pretender. I'm not sold on Ohio State. They're kind of my Clemson from, I think it was a year ago or two years ago. Yeah. Right? Kept saying for it was last year. all With 12 Uwe. weeks where I kept saying, this team is overrated. This team is overrated. They are going to lose at some point. That is Ohio State this year. That's where I'm at, too. I, I, I think they're a pretender. I, like, cool, congrats, Ryan Day, on your late drive that Notre Dame basically gifted you. Like, that was just bad clock management by Notre Dame to allow too much time on the clock for Ohio State to get the ball back. I, I They don't impress me. Like, defensively, you found a way to eliminate one of the top quarterbacks right now in college football with Notre Dame. But... I, I just don't buy into their offense. Yeah, that game didn't really show me no. anything about either of those teams. Like, like Michigan I, and Texas are clear-cut better yeah. than Ohio State. And like Tebow mentioned, I'd frankly put them like seven or eight right now. I guess the only thing I found out was that Ohio State was the better choke show than Notre Dame. Well, that's very true. That And like that's what I said going into that is that both of these teams are choke shows, and neither of them really impressed me. When you talk about the playoffs... I'm not really holding any uh, stock in either right. of these teams. Mark, mark my words here on September 25th at 12:28, they're going to lose to Penn State on October 21st. I agree. Yeah. And I, I agree. think they're going to get shellacked by Michigan too. I think I, I think they're a two-loss team. The, the rest of their schedule stinks, but that's the whole thing. I think Big by Ten. the I think by the end of the season, they're 9-10 in the AP poll. Wouldn't you agree? Ohio State? Yeah. No, I think they're lower than that. Really? You think they're going to drop lower than that? I think they're a top 25 team, probably just because of the name and the talent that's on that roster. Yeah. They're going to have two losses. They may even have a third that pops up out of nowhere. They're not a a college football playoff team, and I don't think they're a contender for it. Again, I think they're losing to Penn State in a couple weeks because they they just have not been impressive to me. So let's go to Florida State then. Florida State, first in the Atlantic Coast. They're ranked, what is it, fifth now? Um, We just talked about them a little bit. Beat Clemson in overtime, but one hell of a game with Florida State. They also have a victory against LSU so far this season. Florida State, pretender or contender? I think Florida State's a contender. I, I think they're a playoff contender. I, I love their offense. I was a little skeptical because there was some question if uh, how their QB would play. He was dealing with an injury from the week prior, but he looked great. Travis looked great. 289 yards, two passing TDs, and 
defensively, I know they had some struggles against that Clemson team. Clemson's actually a better team than we're giving them credit for. I don't think they're a great team by any means, but they're a pretty good team this year. I think Florida State's a, a contender. I really like what I've seen from them through the first four games. They've got a big win against LSU. Now they've beaten Clemson on the road. Really, their only test that's left is you've got Miami and Duke that are left on their schedule in conference play. I, I think they're a I think they're a contender for the playoff. Yeah, I do too. I think they're a playoff team. I, and I think they showcased that against this Clemson team over the weekend. Yeah, I, I'm going to say they're a playoff game too, but the last two games have had a couple of red flags because Clemson's not that good and you went to overtime with them and Boston College is not good and you only won by two points against Boston College. So a couple of red flags lately, but I go back to that LSU game and how they handled LSU pretty easily in that one. And I I think they're through the toughest part of their schedule with LSU and obviously Clemson on the road, even though they're not very good on the road. It's a tough game. Uh, So I'm going to go contender. All right, let's wrap up with the team that uh, put a beat down on Deion Sanders' squad Oregon, 42-6, to now ranked ninth. Uh, and, of course, their head coach made it very clear on the weekend that they are out there for wins and rankings, not clicks on social media. Oregon, pretender or contender? Oh, they're a tough one. I... Can I start it? Because I, yeah. th- I think they're a pretender. I think really? that Colorado game was their Super Bowl. I think that Colorado game was, oh, we got to go out there and beat down Dion. I, I think Sanders was absolutely right afterwards. Like, people are trying to beat Dion Sanders, and they're making it a bigger deal than what it absolutely is because Dion's even stated, like, Colorado's not there yet. They will be sooner or later. I think what Oregon showcased was you can beat up on that type of team, but when you take on the Washingtons, when you take on Utah, when you take on Oregon State and USC, some of those ranked opponents, that's where I think you get kind of... You cower in the back in the corner a little bit after that. So I'm going to say pretender on this one. I don't think they're a contender. See, I think I'm going to lead in contender, but granted, like you could ask me like four Pac-12 teams and I'd probably say contender for the playoffs. <laughs> Very true. Because I think whoever ends up surviving this gauntlet, if they don't beat up on each other, is a playoff team. And I think you could see two teams out of the Pac-12 in its final year. And I think Oregon could be one of those teams. They've got a, I don't want to say a great quarterback, but Bo Nix looks like the guy that was hyped at Auburn. Like he looked fantastic in that game. His mobility can throw the football as well. Defensively, they looked awesome against Colorado. Now, we'll really see what they're made of when they take on high-powered offenses mm-hmm. like USC and U- or, uh, Washington. And they've got Washington in two weeks or three weeks. Um, that'll be the game that'll really determine what they truly are. But I think they're a contender. I, I think defensively, they showed that they can stop stop a team. And then offensively, I think Bo Nix is one of the best quarterbacks in the country. I think they're on the fence right now between contender and pretender, and I'm going to lean pretender here. And, you know, on their home field, they look very good. They played in Texas Tech, who is not a good football team this year. Uh, They just lost to Virginia, I think it was, this past weekend. Uh, And Texas Tech probably should have won that game against Oregon. They they out-competed them for most of that game. Um, And Oregon has a tough schedule. I mean, they've got... All those Pac-12 teams that are that are pretty decent this year. You've got Washington, Washington State, Utah, back-to-back-to-back, two of those on the road. Then you have USC, and you close it out with Oregon State, which that's a huge rivalry game. It's going to be tough. I could see them losing three of those games. So college football playoffs, if you were to pick the teams, who would it be right now? Oh, man. So I think Michigan will get in, though I've had some concerns with them. I think Texas is in. I think it'll be Florida State. And I think whoever wins the Pac-12 will get in. I'm not sure Georgia's a player. You don't think team. Georgia is? I, I'm not sold on their quarterback play. Their defense is really good, so maybe they get in. I think it's going to come down to 
Georgia in a Pac-12 team that's going to have to determine who gets that fourth spot. See, I think it's going to be Georgia, Michigan, Texas, and Florida State. The yeah, Pac-12, that's where I'm the at. Pac-12 just misses out. Really? Mm-hmm. Is it because they beat up on each other? Yeah. I, I think that, and I think the name recognition is going to let like a team like Georgia get in, even if they're underwhelming. I don't think Georgia finishes the year as number one. I think I number one's probably Texas. I also, and I've been saying this, I don't think there's an undefeated team at the end of this season. Which I love personally. I really don't. I do too. I think there's going to be, like, the, the playoffs are going to be more up for grabs than they ever have been in college football this season. It's going to be fun. Week five uh, officially starting up this week as uh, we see Georgia as the number one and the Missouri Tigers in at number 23. We didn't pick that one because, frankly, we're all on the same page. Pretender. Contender. Oh. Uh, you're a jerk. Tanner Hendrickson, Grant Francis. I'm Alex Ferrario. One guy that is a contender yearly for the Cardinals is Nolan Arenado. But are there starting to get some doubts from this season with him? We'll discuss that next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. In talking to Nolan yesterday, he's battled through this for a while. And um, at the end of the day, uh, in conversation, it was to the point where it was limiting him to, uh, to a certain degree, and we, we made the call to go ahead and, and put him on the IL. So that, of course, is Cardinals manager Ali Marmal talking about Nolan Arenado going on the injured list, and pretty much uh, his season is done for uh, this year for the Cardinals. The 32-year-old played 144 games this year, finishes the year with 26 home runs, 93 RBIs, but... The part that you look at is his slash line, 266 batting average. Uh, that's the worst that he's had since that first year here in St. Louis. St. Louis, don't know why I mispronounced that. A 774 OPS, which you take out the 2020 season, worst he's had since his rookie year. And then he finishes with an OPS plus of 109, which worst than it's been since his rookie year. So an underwhelming season for Nolan Arenado, T-Bone, and alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Graham Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. Uh, Nolan Arenado is the epitome of a gamer. He's going to be out there every single day. He has been dealing with this back thing that has just plagued him all season long. Don't matter. He still takes the field. But he is finishing the season with less than 30 home runs, a, a unusual OPS plus and OPS in general, Doubt might be starting to creep in for Cardinals fans in terms of Nolan Arenado. Should it be creeping in? I so I think part of the struggles this year for Nolan Arenado. Or let me rephrase it. I don't not think. I feel like I know the struggles for Arenado this year were mostly injury related. You know, he talked about early on in the year dealing with the back injury and then dealing with kind of some arm fatigue when it came to his fielding. And that's why you saw the struggles defensively early on in the year. It's been clear that his back's been bothering him, and the Cardinals have pulled him out of multiple games before finally placing him on the IL uh, before Friday, that his back's been bothering him. And I think that's why he really struggled down the stretch here in the final month. But I will say this. I don't want to say it's alarming. I don't want to say there's big red flashing alarm bells going off. But I am slightly, I don't know what the right word would be, concerned, worried, that two of the three years here in St. Louis for Nolan Arnato have been disappointing based on his standards that he sets upon himself and the MVP that you thought that the Cardinals were acquiring when they acquired him from Colorado at the end of 20, the heading into the 2021 season, the 2001 season we talked about, he was a really good player. Like there's no taking that away from him, but 
but he wasn't the guy that we were expecting. Because I remember saying, like, is this going to be that second year that you have that bounce back from Nolan Arenado? And last year was. Last year was that great year. Finished third in MVP voting. Was right there with Paul Goldschmidt till the end fighting for that MVP. And then you get this season where the defense took a step back early on. Now it did improve down the stretch, as we've talked about. Offensively, clearly not the same guy. I mean, he's got a lower OPS than the rookie Jordan Walker. And Jordan Walker, like, that's really impressive from Jordan Walker's perspective. But it, it's a little it's a little concerning to see that in the three years that you've had Nolan Arenado, that two of those three have not been what the expectation was when he got acquired and was brought here to St. Louis. I, I, somebody sent in a text on our Air Comfort Service text line, 314-399-9646, saying, you guys, I said, make a mountain out of a molehill. You guys do it better than anybody else. I, maybe we are making a mountain out of a molehill here, but... I mean, the stats are right in front of you. It's two of the worst years statistically Nolan Arenado has ever had, and they've both been in St. Louis. Now, with that being said, those are still good statistical seasons Absolutely. for He's a player. still an all-star. But Arenado is judged a little bit differently than anybody else on the St. Louis Cardinals. Why? Because when you acquire him, you expect him to be hitting cleanup and be playing at an MVP caliber level. And let's just be honest, two of the three years, he's not been that guy. I mean, people were saying the exact same thing about Paul Goldschmidt this year, talking about how, I mean, people were talking about trying to trade the guy because he wasn't the MVP that he was last year. And of course he had the pending UFA status and you also had the, um, the, the age factor into this one. But here's, here's what I am trying to say. Maybe we are making a mountain out of a molehill here. The numbers are at least concerning, especially when you consider a 32-year-old who's dealing with back things that have been nagging him, but also for how much of a gamer Nolan Arenado is. All of that I don't care about, though. I mean, look, he's supposed to be the MVP, but you've built your offense to be dominant from top to bottom. And as long as Nolan Arenado is the gold glove defender from start to finish that he is every season, Nolan Arenado's going to be fine. And even if this is the season we get of a guy that's, 30 or maybe a couple home runs shy at the end of the season. And we're talking about a nine points better than average OPS plus. Yeah, it's frustrating because I'm expecting Nolan Arenado to be one of the best. But I also feel like Nolan Arenado, especially in this season, whether it was the injuries that were nagging him, but he's also the guy that seems to be trying to do everything when the team's in a bad spot. Like he seems to be the Ryan O'Reilly. That's like when the team is in a rut, you look towards him, and Nolan Arenado is trying to save the day with the home runs, and it's just not happening. I think what Nolan Arenado proved this season is that he is going to be there for this team from start to finish when it has mattered, and that's important factor to have around these younger guys, and it also showcases the ability for this other side of the offense to step up to where now you've got Contreras who can offer, I mean, frankly, Arenado-like numbers at the end of the season last year. You've got Gorman, you've got Walker, you've got Donovan. You've got more guys to fill the voids for Nolan Arenado. I want that type of leadership with my squad. Yeah, I, I do too. And look, I, I know that this probably sounds like we're freaking out about Nolan Arenado. We're not freaking out. I do think it is fair to see a little bit of some con- show a little bit of concern. Well, he's 32 years old and the guy plays third base is probably and, one of the most difficult positions. And it's back issues that are kind of have been plaguing him for most of this. You know, look, I think the back issues have probably always been a thing for Nolan Arnado, but he's able to play through them. And I think you're right. I think he is kind of the Ryan O'Reilly type guy that you love him as a leader in the clubhouse. Why? Because he is playing through an injury. He's not having to just say, ah, you know, 
turf. <laughs> Bad on the knees. Not going to be in the lineup today. What are you talking about? He's not. Uh, you know, I'll let you guys fill in the blank on who I'm hinting at there. But I, he's not that guy. He's going to go out there, play while he's sore, even on days that he shouldn't be. And I think the 618 probably said it right. You know, not worried that much about it. Probably should have set him down a little bit sooner. I, I think that's probably true. But I think Nolan Arnado didn't want to shut things down either. And that's one of those where he he's trying to lead by example. And I do like that with a team that's got a bunch of their young players up here now. Jordan Walker. Mason Wynn, Nolan Gorman, who's on the I.L. now, but when he was up here in early September. I do want a guy that's going to show, lead by example, so I do like that. But I am somewhat, again, very little, but somewhat concerned on the fact that of the three years, two of the three have been disappointing by Nolan Arnato's offensive standards. Yeah, I mean, you just you want to have what you had last year with Nolan Arenado, and frankly, I mean, I get it. And it's not that you have to be an MVP-type player or it's a disappointment, but when you're viewed as one of the top players on the team, that is how you're going to be viewed, unfortunately, specifically here in St. Louis. But the other factor into it, why I do think Arenado gets a little bit of leeway, is because somehow these rookies are performing around him. Like, Jordan Walker has turned himself into a guy that I expect to be in right field from start to finish next year. And I know some people would say, well, he was at the beginning of the season, but there were doubts because of his defensive issues. A couple of nights ago, he saves a home run and throws a guy out at second base. We've seen the power. We've seen the ability to make plays and his offense backs it up. 274 batting average, 343 on base, 790 OPS, 115 OPS plus like Jordan. And that's in a rookie year. Jordan Walker is already climbing that ladder of somebody that you're expecting to be an impact player next season for the Cardinals. Yeah, and I think the thing that's really encouraging, and I know he had kind of a rough day in the outfield yesterday, had the ball that he dropped because of the sun, and uh, had that one that kind of skewed away from him. He'll work on those things. But you mentioned the play where he jumped up at the wall and kind of pulled back that home run. Yeah, We've heard in recent weeks where Jordan Walker or Willie McGee have said, okay, here's what they're doing. They're working on tracking balls near the wall there, backing up to the wall. Well, that's a play that they've been talking about that he's working on. And you saw he almost came away and robbed that home run. So you're seeing him start to progress in the things that we've heard publicly that the Cardinals are saying he's working on. I think he's going to be better than an average defender next year. Now, I'm not saying he's going to win a gold glove next year in right field, but I think he's going to be better, above average, and you add in the fact that his base running looks better recently. His arm strength's been great to where he's holding guys from taking an extra base and throwing guys out. And offensively, if he's hitting 274 now and at a 791 OPS, I think he's going to be even better offensively. So you're seeing in the final stretch here that, yes, he is going to be the player that the Cardinals thought he was going to be, and he's becoming an everyday guy and showing the capability to do just about everything on the baseball field. That's absolutely where the optimism lies with this team. It's the offense, whether Arnado's having an underperforming season or the rookie is starting to uh, get people's eyes locked in on him. It comes down to the pitching, which we talked about in questions and answers. And frankly, we're going to be talking about all offseason long as the Cardinals enter their final week of the regular season. Tanner Hendrickson, Graham Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, Matthew Liebertor can be he can he be this version of Nick Martinez for the Cardinals? We'll discuss that, but coming up next, we get to the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. (laughs) 
time to jump into the junk drawer here on BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN, where we are live on our YouTube channel at 101 ESPN STL. Just click on that BK and Ferrario link. You can jump into the live stream with us. BK will be back with us tomorrow. Grant Francis doing a great job helping us out this afternoon. As we dive into the junk drawer and Tanner Hendrickson, oh, I've got something today. So let's see what you got, buddy. Yeah, so I, I want to know if I was... I don't know if I should say if I was in the wrong, but let's just lay out the scenario. You were in the here. wrong. I uh, I go out to dinner Saturday night. We're going to a concert, me and my dad. And uh, we go to a sports bar, and we sit outside. I see they had TVs. They asked, do you want to sit inside or do you want to sit outside? I said, well, let's go outside. I saw there's TVs, and, you know, there's some big college football games going on. So I was just Tanner uh, voicing his insecurities of not being able to be home watching the games. Yeah, exactly. But so... <laughs> Hey, Dad, you made we me go to down. a concert. We sit down, and they had something else on the TVs outside of football. And I don't know if this is, like, something that they have to stick to with their stick. Like, it's got to stay up there. Some other TVs weren't working. And, or maybe someone just wanted this on on the television. So I was like, I'm not going to say anything to our hostess. So what I did was I pulled my phone out, and I put the game on my phone, and I sat it on our table. And after someone brought out our food, she stopped. She looked at us. She said, would you like me to put that football game on the screen up there? It's like, yes. But I didn't want to ask, you know. Should I have just gone out and just asked to put the football game on? No. Or was I in the right? Surprisingly, I think T-Bone was what I would have done in this spot. I wouldn't have asked. I always feel bad asking waitresses to put our waiters to put a... New, something new something on the television. Something new on the television. Because not only do you have to worry about it, and Grant, you could speak to this because you I are an actual say, current th- waiter. This is actually perfect because I'm a server. I, you can ask if you could want something on the TV. That's totally fine. That, there's nothing wrong but with like, that. But I didn't know. I didn't want to change when it. What if somebody else put it on? There. When is the. Oh, I don't then care the about that. The server says actually somebody else requested yeah, something okay. on that TV. I was going to say, I can don't I care get about you something that. else on a different TV? It did feel kind of awkward, though, having my phone just sitting there. And here I am watching football on my phone I, when there's television. I just always feel bad. When you ask when they're in the middle of, like, typically when I ask, it's like when they come over to get our drink orders. Because, like, as soon as I order food, then they're getting into, like, the nitty-gritty of taking care of my table, and they're probably already doing it with other tables. So at least when they first come over, I can just be like, hey, yeah, here's what I want to drink, and do you mind if I ask you to put this on the television? Because then I'm saying it initially, and if they forget, then I'm not worrying about it. Because I've done that before. I've forgotten to change the television to what people want. And, you know, it it gets annoying after a while when you're waiting tables, when you're doing when you're being asked constantly. And it's like, hey, I'm trying to, like, focus on all these other things. Don't worry about your television. Well, and if I'm running around like an idiot and you ask me to put something on the TV, that's fine. But if I don't get to it for a couple minutes, like, chill. OK, I, I, I don't feel as bad. I, I felt kind of embarrassed that I had the moment because here's how it here played out, too. It was after she brought us. I think it was either our beers or our food. I can't remember which. Um but she brings it by and she starts to walk away and then she pauses. She pauses after two, three steps and she turns back around and goes, do you want me to put that game That's on? That's a great waitress. She was great. That's a great waitress. If if you recognize that and offer it, oh yeah, you and just I, nailed, I, yeah, I you just nailed like a 40% I, tip. Okay. I, I felt like I would have been in the wrong if I was like, okay, change the channel, please. Like I was kind of scared to do it. Yeah, but you got to phrase it the right way. Like the no nos when you're waiting tables is to be a jerk is the way you phrase things. Like, if you're just a complete a-hole, like, game over. 
Okay. Well, then I feel a little bit better about it. There's two things, and not very many things will irritate me while I'm at work, but there's two things that tick me off. Kicker missing a field goal. Well, aside, I'm talking about just a, as a server. Grant's holding a plate of food, and then a kicker misses a field goal, and he just chucks the, the tray on the ground. It's like, son of a... So, if you ask me to turn the temperature up because you're cold, yeah. no. Oh, yeah. That, that's a no-no? Oh, we yeah, are that's running BS. around. Okay. We are sweating. We're hot. Like, half the time, I'm standing back in the refrigerator, the walk-in refrigerator in the kitchen, because I'm sweating. You can go get a jacket. I, I don't want to turn the air Bring a damn jacket. Up. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a... First of all, do you really think me turning up the air in this big restaurant is going to make that much of a difference for you? Yeah. Put a, bring, a, bring a damn sweater. Yeah. Nailed it, Grant. And Grant, like, Grant. Grant's the guy that they place you at a table under the air conditioning vent. And Grant's like, well, sorry, no, okay. bad luck. But, but here's the other thing. We don't we don't seat our tables like they seat themselves. Yeah, so you're, and the, then, you're the dumb dumb. Like if people sit under the air conditioner and then they're like, it's cold. Okay. Uh, look up. Yeah, Wrong he, seat. Here's the other thing that'll get me irritated is when, you know, I'm running around. There's tables that are clean. You can tell which tables are clean because those tables have menus on them. The ones that aren't clean don't have menus on them. And then somebody will sit down at a table with no menus on them, and I'll go over to them and be like, this table's dirty. And I'll be like, well, there's menus on that table right there. That one's clean, but I'll go wipe this one for you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't That'll think he'd be a nice server. You know, I, you know I, what I can't always, picture Gramp smiling. You know what always... Oh, no, I'm I'm a very nice no, server. No, everything's I, everything's internalized. Internal. Yeah, Grant's, yes. Grant's the polar opposite of me. Grant says it in the kitchen. I'm the one that says it out loud. You know the one that gets me, though? And this is just from my time working at a certain restaurant that it, it's just it's nonstop the request. It's asking for something else every time I come back with the first thing you ask. For. Ask all at once. Ask Try all at to. once. Yeah. And don't give me the, oh, well, I didn't know I wanted that. Man, they used to do it where they'd say, can I get extra this? Can I get extra that? Can I do this? Can I do that? I'm like, are you bleeping kidding me? I have been here five times in the last five minutes. You need to just say it all at once. Bring bring me your grocery list, and I will go to the back and bring it all to you. Probably why I don't wait tables anymore. I have so much respect for waiters and waitresses because I did that for like a year, and I I was miserable. I think everybody should work in the food industry at least for like a few months just, just to experience so, Just so they know how to treat somebody the proper way. Because like if you've never done it, you don't know how not to speak to somebody. I just say if you don't know the answer on how to properly do it, don't ask. Pull like, your phone out and just yeah, do it yourself. Watch the football game yep. on your phone. That's my kind oh, of guy. My other favorite thing that happened was um, someone called our, because we're a chain. Someone called us and was like, oh, what's the number for your East Alton location? I said, let me look it up on Google. Passive aggressive answer. I would have done the exact same thing. Actually, I would have just said, you have Google, right? Yeah. You could, see, you know, I would expect <clears throat> you to help out there. No. I mean, I did, but like, passive aggressive it up. <laughs> passive aggressively, which is the way to go about it. Passive aggressive always gets things done, Tanner. You know what it does? It's like it's like when you say thank you angrily. Like one of my favorite comedians jokes about like when somebody doesn't hold the door open for him and he walks in and he goes, thank you. Because it's basically I'm saying thank you, but it, the meaning behind the words are blank you. You're just you're just ridiculous. Passive aggressive always works. Grant Francis coming to a restaurant near you. Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Alex Ferrario. Coming up next, Matthew Libertor. I, I think we're all on the same page of he's going to be a bullpen arm. But what type of bullpen arm could he be? We'll discuss that next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101.
ESPN. So I think all of us seem to be on the same page with who Matthew Libertor truly is. And alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. Matthew Libertor is a reliever. Matthew Libertor has gotten his opportunities as a starter. He performed admirably in that Tampa Bay game. But other than that, it seemed to be the same thing. But in relief this season, there have been seven games for Matthew Libertor where he's gone eight and two-thirds. He's given up two earned runs, four hits, three walks, nine strikeouts, and a 138 batting average against him. And Matthew Libertor, he... His spot was, he was Wally pipped essentially by Zach Thompson. And frankly, for a little bit there, it was Dakota Hudson. And you kind of know where the the standards fall. But T-Bone, you brought up the name Nick Martinez to me and BK in our text chain that could he be the player that Matthew Libertor hopes to become for the St. Louis Blues. And for those that don't know, Nick Martinez, of course, with the San Diego Padres, 62 games this season. He started eight of them, 105.1 innings of work with a 3.59 ERA. So mainly a bullpen arm, but in but in need dire need situations, Libertor is starting for them. Yeah, I, I really like Matthew Libertor, and I know he gave up runs and they lost this week against San Diego. And it's pretty clear the Cardinals are testing him in higher leverage spots. Almost feels like... The plan is going to be to have him as a reliever next year. And I like that because I think his fastball plays up better that way, and then he can use the breaking ball to play off of it because he can keep the velo and maintain that velocity, unlike when he does it as a starter, where we know the main issue has been velo continues to dip. Um, I wonder if they could plan on him, or at least try and hope that he could become a version of Nick Martinez or also like a uh, Colin McHugh who's in Atlanta to where – it's a guy that's a can be a high leverage reliever, which Nick Martinez can be as this year. I think he's got ten uh, holds this year, where he can come into late inning situations, come into the eighth inning, and he can be a guy that could start for you if you're in a bind, as you saw against the Cardinals just yesterday, where he ended up going four innings and he pitched pretty well, didn't allow a run, and he probably could have gone longer if he was stretched out. And he's a guy that could cover multiple innings, which is kind of what we've seen Libertor do a little bit this year as well. I wonder if he's kind of the guy that the Cardinals kind of. Hope Libertor can become. Okay, maybe you give up on the starting route of Matthew Libertor and he becomes a bullpen arm. Can he be a high leverage left handed bullpen arm? Can he be kind of a middle inning bullpen arm? Could he be a guy that is one of those that's kind of a swing arm to where if you need him to cover three innings, he can cover three innings. You need to make a spot start, Libertor can make a spot start. Can he pitch one inning of high leverage relief? I think that's kind of what the Cardinals are hoping Matthew Libertor at this point can now become. And honestly, that would be a win for the St. Louis Cardinals if he became somewhat of a version of Nick Martinez. Because again, you read off his numbers, covering 105 and a third innings, 359 ERA. Cardinals would sign up for that if, if Matthew Libertor were to give them those kind of numbers next season. So I, I think the plan moving forward for Libertor is going to be as a bullpen arm. Can he be that swing arm that we've kind of talked about? And remember, the Cardinals had interest in Colin McHugh at one point, or mm-hmm. we were, we talked about Colin McHugh at least. So I, I think when I saw Nick Martinez pitch yesterday and then I looked up his numbers, I was like, I wonder if this is what the hope could be for Matthew Libertor. Is it strange, though, for me that I'd before I go down that path, I'd like to see what he is as a high leverage, high leverage reliever? Only because, and I know I've brought the name up so many times, and, and I don't know if he gets there, but just the movement on some of his pitches makes me wonder if you could get to an Andrew Miller-esque type guy. I mean, you're left-handed, you're big, you do have the movement on those pitches, and if you're used in like one-inning rolls, you can just 
heave back and bring the most velocity possible, which seems to be when he's at his best. And, and it's it's hard for me to say try that and then go to being that middle reliever swingman. Like it feels like you'd do the swingman before you'd go high leverage. But going into next season, I mean, I know you're going to have JoJo Romero, most likely Gallegos, Helsley, and Helsley has looked great towards the end of the season, who's joining us this week on BK and Ferrario, by the way. But part of me, before I get to the point where I say, let's see if you could be a swingman for us, and we'll use you in certain spots, but in, in emergency situations, we'll get you there. Like for next season, I'd look at it and say, can we get the best out of Matthew Libertor in the seventh or eighth inning? Well, see, I... I think you can try out both because I don't think it's like starting where it is, okay, you got to be stretched out to do this. I think you can try out both and kind of manipulate like you saw the Cardinals do that this week and they put him in a high lever spot, middle of the order against San Diego, and he gives up the two-run homer to um, Manny Machado in that game and they lose on Friday night. I don't think he can be Andrew Miller. And I, I think it's unfair to even throw in the same name in this conversation with Matthew Libertor because I don't think he's got the dominant pitch that Andrew Miller had. I think his curveball is good. I, was say, I feel like his curveball and his slider curveball is are good. Good, but I don't think it's as dominant as Andrew Miller. Like when I think Andrew Miller, I think one of the best sliders in all of baseball yeah. when he was in his prime. So I don't think he can be Andrew Miller. Can he just be a good left hander reliever that I we don't really have a comp for that we've seen? Maybe like a, I don't even know if Kevin Seacrest would be a guy that would fit in this. Maybe Kevin Seacrest type when he was healthy and right. That would be kind of the guy that you're hoping for. And I, I don't mind them trying to use him in kind of a swing role next year. I do think, though, that you're probably not going to – he may stretch out in spring training, but they do that with a lot of pitchers. I don't think you're going to see him in the plans of, okay, he's our number eight starter going into next year. He's our number nine starter going into next year. I think their hope is he can take continue to pitch well out of the bullpen in the final uh, six games this year. And going into next year, can secure a role as one of their middle relief left-handed pitchers because – if, if he can be a solid bullpen arm like he's been so far when he's been moved there, your three lefties in the pin next year are JoJo Romero, John King, and Matthew Libertor, and possibly Packy Notton if he comes back from surgery and pitches well. I I like the idea of Matthew Libertor being this kind of swing man, taking on this Nick Martinez role. Maybe he doesn't have a 3-5-9 ERA. Maybe he has a 4 ERA. But a guy that can start games in a pinch, can cover multiple innings, and also pitch in high-leverage spots like Nick Martinez does – that's kind of what I would mold to hope that uh, Matthew Libertor becomes at this point in his career. Since we're on the bullpen conversation, and we didn't plan this, but it just popped into my head because we're talking about this, T-Bone, because we were texting about it last night. Uh, are we expecting to see Wilking Rodriguez at any point before the end of the season? Because I know that kind of the, the scuttlebutt out there for Cardinals reporters were that, that they weren't writing it off, that we could see him at some point. And look... I'm only bringing this up because, like, at some point we have to see the stuff that they're acting like would have been impactful on the season. But do you even feel like he has any role on this team for next year? Because if he doesn't pitch, you have to keep him on your 40-man roster next season. Yeah, I I really don't know what to expect on what the plan is with Wilking Rodriguez. I think there's a chance they could just cut bait with him at the end of the year if he does. And, and look, he's it only going to get— sense. <laughs> if he does pitch, it's only going to be probably— one inning would right. be my guess is he's going to get one final out. Guillermo Zuniga-esque. Um, <laughs> one inning and then we'll throw you back to the minors. Um, but I, I really don't know what to say the plan is for Wilkin Rodriguez. Because remember, this is a guy they had the huge hopes for, acquired him in the Rule 5 draft yeah, they last year. like he was going to be an impactful piece of this team this yeah, season. Yeah, and, and you just haven't been able to see him because he just hasn't been able to stay healthy. So maybe they continue to have that high belief in him and elect to continue and keep him on the 40-man and keep him on the active Major League roster, which they'd have to do next year. 
Or maybe they just say, you know what, didn't work out. There's no need for us to have another uncertainty on our roster. Let's just cut bait. So I, I really do not know what to expect, what the plan will be for Wilkin Rodriguez. And I, I won't, like, he's like the 40th man on the 40th man Yeah, right I was going to so like, say, it's not It's not like we're get, talking about, right. like, oh, they just acquired a all-star caliber reliever and he's going into free agency, but you never got to see him pitch. So I don't know. It's going to be fascinating because I think he is someone that you really would like to see get at least one appearance if you can this season. I think you'd like to see it just because the hype that the, the, the Cardinals made around it. That's the only reason I want to see it. Beyond that, I, I could care less about it. But if he's going to be an impactful piece in their eyes this season and you'd spent that equity on the Rule 5 draft, you would imagine if there's still optimism there, the Cardinals will find a way to keep him on their squad. Tanner Hendrickson, Grant Francis, I'm Alex Ferrario. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll get to our pick em reveal. Uh, one of the three of us, boy, we are already facing a loss unless some uh, some miracles take place next week. We'll get to that 15, but coming up next, you send us the scenarios uh, 314-399-9646 or Air Comfort Service text line and we will tell you if we are in or out. That's next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Come on, man. Are you in or are you out? It's in or out with BK and Ferrario. That's right. 314-399-9646. Air Comfort Service text line. That sound means it's time for In or Out here on BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grand Francis. I'm Alex Ferrario. Let's start with this, boys. In or Out, the New York Jets trade for a starting quarterback before the deadline. Reports, if you missed it, uh, from a couple of different writers are saying that the Jets have checked in with the Vikings about Kirk Cousins. I'm going to say out just because it's not something that we see hardly ever. It's because, one, you got to learn a whole new system. And, two, even though Minnesota is 0-3, I can still see where they can tell themselves, we're in the bleep at NFC. <laughs> we can still – we get hot. We can win nine games. We could back our way into the playoffs. So I'm going to say out. I I just can't see the Jets making the trade. I, I think they're going to have to just – deal with the fact that they're dealing with Zach Wilson the rest of the season. I will say that they need to open up the playbook a little bit more. I think they just got to try and somehow install more confidence in Zach Wilson because he just looks scared to death out there right now. So, But I, I'm out on this. I, I can't see a quarterback being moved to the deadline. I think they either go out and sign a free agent, which isn't a great option, but <laughs> with Zach Wilson, that's about the worst option you have at this point. Um, I, I could also see them trying to do someone else in their system over Zach Wilson because he was horrific yesterday. Dude, Garrett Wilson awful. was lighting him up on the sidelines. I, you can't stick with Zach Wilson. You, you can't. Like, I don't even care that your team's bad and you knew it when Aaron Rodgers went down. It's, it's beyond bad with this roster and Zach Wilson. The dude looks afraid to throw the ball, and when he gets under pressure, he's spinning around in circles and just falling down. He's not... And when he throws it, he is way over dude's heads. I'm going to actually say I'm in on this one. I don't think it's going to be Kirk Cousins. That's too massive of a trade. But there will be some team that they make a trade with because I can see the New York Jets just saying, bleep it, we've got to give up whatever they're asking for so that we can make this better. T-Bone, what do you got? In or out, if, is kind of what if scenario, if the Blues have to become sellers at the trade deadline again, they will listen to offers for Pavel Buchnevich. In or out. 
And the whole reason I ask this is because he's got one more year left yeah. on his contract, not eligible for an extension until the uh, training camp of next year. If they start to get hints of he may not resign, they may look to pull a trigger when he's got another year of control. I'm going to say out because I think the card the Cardinals. I think the Blues view Buchnevich as one of their core pieces. They're going to have 17 and a half million dollars available in cap space next year with like nine forwards already locked up, and really there's nobody that's going to need big extension. Um, and then the next year when Booch is a free agent, it's going to be like $31 million. They're going to pay Booch whatever he wants because he's viewed as a top 10 right winger in the NHL. So I'm going to say I'm out on this one because if it's bad this year, they'll look at this and say, are we progressing? And for us to take that next step, I think we're going to need Booch. I'm going to go out on it as well. I think he's one of the core pieces too. And with the cap going up in years to come, it's going to hurt a little bit less to sign a player to longer term. So I'll go out on that as well. Let me. Um, Army doesn't typically, though, give out extensions to guys entering their 30s. And that is part of the reason why I raise a little bit of question to this, too, is because he will be 28 this year, 29 next year. It really is all about what he wants. If he wants more than five years, he's not going to get it. He'll be gone. If he's willing to do something between four and five years, Army will lock him up in a heartbeat. But if it goes beyond that, I just don't see it happening. It also comes down to how Booch plays this season. If he's not if he's not healthy an awful lot, if if he is healthy and there doesn't seem to be progress with Thomas and Kairou, then yeah, I could see him investigating. Here are the free agents the same year that Buchnevich is a free agent. Kapanen and Verona, but they're free agents this year. Torpchenko, who's a restricted free agent. Um, Jake Neighbors, who's a restricted free agent. And Tyler Tucker, who's a restricted free agent. So, like, those are the guys that are in the conversation. You're not, there's nobody else that's making more than $4 million of the players that I just named. And you got $31 million available to you. And by then, you're expecting some younger forwards to take place. So, I'll say this, though if they do investigate it, welcome to you acquiring your top defenseman to play with Colton Pareko. Yeah. Like, team just off the top of my brain right now. Vegas Golden Knights get into a situation where their offense stinks and need more help. You go out there and you trade Booch with a year and a half for one of their young top defensemen. Like, that's how it would get done. I yeah. still don't think it's going to happen. I, no. I agree. I think it's out, but I think it will become a interesting conversation. And I think we could start to hear rumblings if they don't get off to the start that we kind of expect. And they become potential sellers because that's when you'll start to hear the rumors of, Hey, what's Booch going to decide? Does he want to be here? Does he not want to be here? If, if he's not traded in the offseason and he just goes into the next season without a contract, he'll he'll be he'll be traded at that deadline. If he's locked up, it's going to be in the offseason. That'll be when they give him the contract extension. Grant, what do you got? Yeah, uh, so I would just look this up in the break. The Blues last season were 18th in terms of hits in or out that they finished top 10 this season. Oh, in. On a nightly basis, Blaze going to have five to seven hits. Sonny's going to have four to six hits. Torpchenko's probably going to have a few. Um, Jake Neighbors is going to have a few. Marco Scandella's playing. He's going to have a few. Benner will have one. Benner will have at least one or two. I tell you what, watch out for Bortuzzo. Uh, Joey and I were talking about this off air and with Bortz being an unrestricted free agent for the Blues and not wanting to end his career, obviously, because what he's like 32, 33 years old. Ports might be a big-time player this season for the Blues. So I'm going to say I'm in on this one. I think they're going to have a lot of physical play. I think I'll be in on this, too, because I do think they're going to play a more physical brand of hockey this year. 
Um, and you mentioned a couple of those guys. I mean, Blay, yeah, bring in Sonny. If Nick Ritchie makes a team off of his PTO, he's a guy that will throw the body around. So I, I think I'm in on this. I, I think they'll be a little bit more physical. So I could see where they get like right there at like number 10. Uh, from the 314 on our Air Comfort Service text line, 314-399-9646. In or out, the current college football top five teams could all beat the Chicago Bears. Out. What? I don't think I don't think a college team could beat an NFL team because those guys, though they are abysmal, those guys are bigger, stronger. They are truly conditioned to play NFL football. I always would believe that even the team that wins the national championship, that Georgia team last year, would lose to the worst team in the NFL. Top five quarterbacks of those top five teams, are they all better than Justin Fields? Let's see. Who's in the top So five? you got Georgia. I don't even know who their no. quarterback is. Michigan. No. McCarthy. Texas. <clears throat> Too loose with the football. Ewers. No. Ohio State. Uh, no. And Florida they're, State. They're running. Their quarterback's overrated. Travis. No. Because. I, I, I agree. I actually think Justin Fields is better than all of those guys. And again, like, they're just so much bigger and stronger. So I, it would take a lot for a. NFL team to lose to a college football team. Now, you put Justin Fields on one of those top five football, college football teams, now we might be talking about a team that might be a favorite no, for the rest of the season. No, because they just like the Bears. Whoa. Because they, couldn't, they wouldn't be able to block. No. They wouldn't be able to block All any of these All five of those college tackles. football teams have better offensive linemen. No. I, I will Bears. say, I don't think any team in college football this season could, but I think in the past, some of those Alabama super teams that they had, both on the defensive and offensive side of the balls, uh, like they're superstars now in that the L- NFL. That LSU team that won yeah, the whole that, thing could whoop up on the Chicago Bears. I don't Bears. know if it would be a win for the college football team, but I could see it being a game between them and the worst team in the NFL. Uh, from the 636, in or out, Connor Bedard finishes top seven in points this year. Out, all the way out on this one. Who the hell is he passing to? Uh, Corey Perry. No, Corey Perry's on himself. their fourth line. Mm. Yeah, himself. Uh, look, Connor Bedard watching that that game. And Taylor in, Hall. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, for the thirty games he plays and isn't hurt. Fair. Well, uh, Connor Bedard might be enough. looked awesome. <laughs> might be enough. Yeah, that's like nine points every game. <laughs> he looked awesome in that St. Paul prospect game that they played. The, the night he scored a hat trick. But I also think Connor Bedard is going. He does play in the Central Division, guys. Like he plays against Colorado. Dallas, Winnipeg, Minnesota. Those four teams are going to make it very difficult on Connor Bedard. I didn't even mention the St. Louis Blues. I think he's going to be good. It's clear he's going to win Rookie of the Year, but like, let's be real here. He's not putting up 90 points this season. Yeah, I don't think I'm out. I don't think he's going to be top seven. I was just looking at this. The top seven players had 109 plus points last year. I don't think he'll do that. I could see where he's a point per game player. I could see where he gets 90, but I think you do make a good point of I don't know who he's passing the puck to, and I don't know if if they have enough offensive power to work. He's going to have to be the main goal scorer, and I don't know if he's going to have a ton of assists this year. I, I still hate talking about Connor Bedard already. Because we should have like, gotten him. I'm still pissed about the draft lottery. Yeah, I haven't gotten over that fully yet. Oh I mean, I haven't either. I just understand it's, it's a disgusting. hoax. Just I just understand it's a hoax. Connor, Bed- Connor McDavid scored 48 points in 45 games in his rookie year. That was the shortened season. Here were his line mates. Jordan Eberle, Taylor Hall, Leon Dreisaitl, Ryan Nugent Hopkins. All pretty good players. Want me to go down the top nine or the top six right now for the Chicago Blackhawks? Do it. It'll make me feel better. All right. Hold on. I got to pull them up. Uh, top six for the Chicago Blackhawks. Um, the centerman 
Of course, Connor Bedard. Taylor Hall, the left winger. Pretty good player. Uh, Tyler Johnson. That's the former Tampa Bay Lightning, if you remember. He was good like seven years ago. Lucas Reichel. He's a he's a young player in a top six role. Stud. And then pick your poison of Philip Kurashev, Boris Kachuk, or Reese Johnson. You putting up 90 points with those guys? They're in the top six. They're in the top six. Those Bedard would be maybe makes, fourth line players. What you're on not understanding team. is Bedard makes everybody around him better. I'm He's just, like McDavid. I just wish the Blues would have effed around a little more for Fantilli. We know, we know that. Uh, what's his name? Evander Kane's with McDavid, or he was with McDavid. We all know he wasn't a great player, but he looks better because he's with McDavid. Bedard's gonna do the exact same. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay with Dvorsky. I'm still happy. Do you with guys him. see that Fantilli play like 23 minutes last night for the Blue Jackets preseason game? <laughs> he did everything. Oh man, that's only, probably gonna be the regular season yeah, for Columbus. If only they would have sucked for uh, eight more spots to just move up higher into that draft lottery, right, T-Bone? Tanner Hendrickson, Grant Francis, Alex Ferrario. Speaking of sucking, boy, did one of the three of us have an awful weekend in our pick and basically he's got the L next to his name. We'll explain coming up in our next segment with our pick reveal here on BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Another week of our picks on BK and Ferrario and another week closer to suffering the consequences Mm. of strapping on the pregnancy contraction simulator. And I got to tell you guys, this has been staring at me at the face at home. I don't know what the pain level is going to be, but I know that two of the three of us won't be able to handle it. So hopefully the one that could. Nope, nope, not you. The one that could handle it doesn't get punished. So for those that don't know, each week we do our pick'em challenge. We do them different than what we did last year where we don't do at the end of each week a punishment. We do the end of each month the punishment, and we do a point system. Three games we pick off of confidence, three being the most confident, two, then one being the least confident of your three picks, and if you get them right, you get those points. Tanner was in the lead. I, along with BK, was tied going into this week. So let's start with the leader in the clubhouse, Tanner Hendrickson's one-point play. I'm going to go with the Ravens minus eight versus the Colts. Anthony Richardson has officially been ruled out. I don't even know who their backup is. I think it's Gardner Minshew. It's Thor, man. Yeah, that that screams turnovers. I, I think Baltimore's going to have an easy easy time covering that spread. They didn't cover that spread. They uh, did not have an easy time covering that spread. Minus eight points and embarrassing loss for the Baltimore Ravens. But I'll give it to Tanner. It's only his one-point play. Yeah, you know, Gardner Minshew, that felt like one that should have been covered. You, but, knew, that uh, was, you knew the moment you picked that it wasn't going to happen. Well, in my defense, what was it, an hour after we did that pick? The entire team was out. The entire team got ruled out by Baltimore. That's why I make an argument. Our pick should be on the rewind every Friday, not in the middle of the show, because all of those injury lists come out the next, like, hour. Yeah, they were missing... Odell Beckham, two offensive tackles, yeah, a Ronnie handful Stanley. of other players. Uh, one of the running backs, Gus Edwards, I think, left that game injured. Yeah. It was a mess. I didn't deserve well, that one point. Cr- cry me a river, T-Bone. You missed out on one point. Let's see if you got your two-point play. I'm going to the college slate, too, for number two. I believe this team is winning this game outright. Ohio State is overrated. Give me the Notre Dame Fighting Irish plus three against Ohio State. Give it to him. Train him up the middle. He's in. 
Nothing mm-hmm. made me happier than that play taking. Grant was in studio with me, and I was cheering for Ohio State to make a run. And I like Notre I, Dame. I yeah, was, but, but Alex was in panic mode, too, because time had expired, and he was like, are they not going to kick? I, I, I yeah. still think that you I, got that. I thought they were going to just take that snap and just take a knee, because if the extra point's blocked and Ohio State take, or excuse yeah. me, Notre Dame takes it to the house, it's two points and it's tied. I was very scared that that wasn't going to take place. But that's a big old goose egg next to Tanner on his two-point play. I could use his three-point play. Let's see if he was shut out like the Cardinals offense many times this season with oh, his three-point play. Oh, the one I'm most confident in this week. I'm going back to the college football ranks. I'm going Texas minus 14 and a half at Baylor. I think they're going to come out. They're going to be throwing punches early on. And I think they're going to cover the 14 and a half. He's from an empty set. Viewers with pressure in his face, escapes the pocket, tucks the run. Across the 25, has the first down, stays in bounds, and takes it all the way into the end zone. All right, so T-Bone picked up that one. The Longhorns cover, and T-Bone gets three points, which puts him three points. at 10 officially in our standings. I'd much rather just get the three-point play than just the one-point play. So BK and I had five, so we have some ground to make up with T-Bone at 10. Let's start with my number one pick. All right, level one, I don't like this spread. Twelve and a half points is a lot, Hmm. but Arizona sucks, and Dallas is going to make Joshua Dobbs regret playing football. Third down and goal, fake to Connor. Dobbs retreats and floats for the end zone. It's Brown. It's a touchdown. You even told yourself you didn't want to take that line. Guess what we found out after I made my pick. Trayvon Diggs injured himself and wasn't playing in that game that day. No, I think we knew that beforehand. Well, if we did, I didn't know that, well, so I shouldn't have fault. made that pick. I thought that it happened Friday afternoon. Yeah, while we were on air. I thought it happened before, before the that. pick. Regardless, it was a bad pick by me. I went against my own rules. Don't pick spreads bigger than 10. I followed that rule for the other two. Let's pick my number two play. Number, number two, two on this list, going to pick Brandon Staley's team. Oh, it's a one-and-a-half-point spread, and I'm going to oh. go with the team that's the underdog here, and I think the Chargers can do I this think one. 12 seconds when Cousins gets the snap. Steps up, throws for the end zone, deflected, Six. and oh, it's intercepted. No. Kenneth Murray, after the double deflection, ends up with the football and extinguishes the Vikings' hopes. Let, let's have a moment of honesty. What were your thoughts when Staley went for it on fourth down at his own, like, 30, and they failed? Dear God, I'm going to lose this play also. But remember what I said also. I said I wish I would have flipped the Cowboys and Chargers in terms of confidence. I'm glad I didn't because that would have only been one point. I got those two points. Thank God that the Vikings don't know how to play defense or, frankly, offense at times. So I picked up two points there. Let's see if I picked them up on that three-pointer. My number three, I'm taking Seattle minus five and a half. The Red Rocket is is uh, playing for Carolina. Uh, I think Seattle easily handles that minus five and a half. Trying to extend the lead. Handoff. Walker. He's in. Touchdown. Seahawks. Just call me Steph Curry. Sink those threes all day long, T-Bone. Five and a half, no problem for my Pete Carroll squad. Yeah, it did not look like they were going to cover Carolina, five and a half for No, a while. it didn't. I'm surprised that, thankfully, Carolina just combusted at the end of that one. But I cover on three-point and two-point, which means I pick up five, which means T-Bone no longer is the leader in the clubhouse. He is now tied with your homeboy. Alex Ferrario. Hey, as long as you're not last, I don't hey, really care. As Ricky Bobby once said, if you ain't first, you're last. Let's see if uh, BK can avoid that with his one-point play. My level one pick for the week. I love the Patriots on the road at New York, minus the two and a half points. First down, play action. Over the top, they go, and he's got Brown, Pharaoh Brown. 
stretches out, and it's a touchdown, New England. It, it not only hurts that they lost, but Farrell Brown is the one that beat the New York Jets. Frankly, if all three of us don't have repeats the rest of the season as the Jets losing in our bets, we're doing something wrong. I don't know how they ever cover a point oh, spread I, again. I mean, their defense is good. That's why I didn't want to take that one, is I could see them shutting down Mac Jones. And I was almost right. 15-10 to 10 was a very close game. So yeah. I... I thought that pick was risky, but BK was right. BK thought my pick was risky, and I clinched it. The people that think the picks are risky fall through because BK picked up one point. He's now at six. Let's see what he got at number two. My two-point game instead, though, is going to the college side of things. I think Oregon State is a significantly better team than Washington State. I think this line should be about six, six and a half, and instead it's only three. Give me Oregon State minus the three points. Try to convert from Washington State. Ward back to pass to the outside. First down and more for Kelly. Slips out of the tackle. What an effort. Josh Kelly. That game was over early He on. was so confident when he made it. And then Saturday, like, I think probably five minutes into the first quarter, he texted us and said, can I take my pick back? Yeah. So, uh, BK. Can, can I tell you my favorite part about the Pick'em Challenge? Huh. Is BK will say off air before we do the picks. I hate this. I'm not very good at this. And then he'll go on air. Feel super confident yep. in all three of his picks. So confident to where it makes me laugh every morning I come in the day after and edit these things together. So confident. And that- I hear how he's like, oh, they should be favored by more than just three points. And then they got shellacked by Washington State. So confident that he tells us our picks are incorrect when yeah. we're the ones that actually strike gold with our picks. Yeah. So he missed two. He's obviously got to get number three, right? Can somebody please explain to me? Why the Browns are a three and a half point Here he goes again. this week against the Tennessee Titans. Not only do I think that the Tennessee Titans cover this three and a half point spread oh, in yeah? Cleveland, I think the Titans win outright. Oh, play action from Watson's oh, going to take a oh, shot. Oh, my goodness. Cooper wide open. Touchdown. Watson to Cooper for the knockout strike. Well, he learned my, why the better quarterback was on Cleveland's team. Yeah, my, my reaction exactly every time I hear BK make a pick. <laughs> oh, my. Oh my, oh my, oh my goodness. So BK picks up a one lonely point to put him at six. And somebody texted it and said, Alex is wrong. He's got a minus one. That's not how this works. We don't get minus points for our wrong picks. You just don't get the points. I picked up five points. T-Bone picked up three. BK picked up one. So me and T-Bone sit with 10. BK's got six going into the final week of this. And if you're doing math at home, the most points he can get are six. So he has to get all three right, or at least his third and second pick right, and both of us lose out. So it's an, up, it's an uphill climb it's for an, BK. It's an uphill battle, and we'll see what kind of confidence he has going and into the final week of my, our pick him. Maybe I shouldn't say this because I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. No, we can say it now, man. Um, at what level do we start to hear BK say, do we really have to keep increasing the level? Do as, we have to do this as soon as after he straps it segment? on? Oh, I think I think at least like no, one. No, he's agreed to it. He can't push back. But as soon as he puts that on, he's going to regret it. Yeah, I I think after level one or two, we start I, to hear him I, complain about. I it. actually think I might I I, I might try it. Either before we what? use it, I'm really curious. Oh, no, no, I'm going to try like the level one because I'm very curious oh, what it feels like. But no thanks. I uh I, I can't wait to watch. I'm him good scream. if I never find out what it feels I, like. I told I told my wife and my dad. I said. I agreed to whatever we decided to do. 
I just really don't want to lose the week that we do the pro- or the month we do the prostate exam. Oh yeah, and it does not make me feel good that like we are in the lead right now because in poker I always say win early, lose late, and my God, I hope that that doesn't come true <laughs> with this one. So we'll make our picks for the upcoming weekend on Friday uh, to see what BK can do in this uphill battle. We will hit the rewind next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Stewart's American Mortgage. Google the bagel loan featuring zero fees and zero closing costs. Here on BK and Ferrario alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Graham Francis. I'm Alex Ferrario. We got Monday Night Football tonight. Buccaneers and Eagles, Rams and Bengals. You'll hear Bucks and Eagles starting at 6 o'clock with pregame here on 101 ESPN. And then, of course, you'll hear the Blues and Blue Jackets tomorrow night for preseason game number three. It's at Enterprise Center. 7 o'clock puck drop. I've got your first community credit union pregame show starting at 6 o'clock. Blues, of course, go 1-1 one and one over the weekend in their split uh, their split squad doubleheader preseason action against the Coyotes. But the good news from the weekend was, of course, the Missouri Tigers. I should state that as the number 23 ranked Missouri Tigers. And T-Bone will rewind it here because they did everything I wanted to see them accomplish in a game that I thought could have gone the other direction. I was expecting that one to be a little bit more of a dud, mostly because you're coming off of the high of the K-State game. I do know that Missouri, of course, is better than Memphis, specifically on offense, but I was worried it wasn't going to be backed up by their play. They did so. They showed bold moves in terms of onside kicks and going forward on fourth down. They showed highlight reel plays in terms of deep shots downfield and Luther Burden exposing his explosiveness. And they also won that game playing sloppy for a half of football. So all of that leads me to look at this team and say, now that they're beginning SEC play, I'm expecting more from Mizzou than I have in the last five or six years. Yeah, I... We mentioned that going into this week or this past weekend's game that this was kind of just a pass fail test for the Missouri Tigers, and they passed. And I think for the most part, you like what you see from them. I I know that it ended up being a little closer than maybe some people were expecting, but one of those touchdowns was kind of a garbage time touchdown for Memphis. Mizzou just got kind of soft there at the end, allowed them to score, and then recovered that onside kick. My book. If it matters to anybody, they won by like fourteen. So, I, I think it doesn't they, matter. I, okay, fine. I, I, but I think they played really well, and I think the most encouraging part was I thought the defense looked good, but I think it was the offense that was most encouraging to me, and the explosive plays that you saw. You saw them run the football pretty well in that game against Memphis. You saw Brady Cook take some shots down the field. Him and Burden look like a dynamic duo that is going to keep you in a lot of football games. And I mentioned this stat earlier. You know, when you look at Luther Burden in all of power in the power five conferences through four games, he leads all receivers with 340 yards after the catch. And that's what you want. You want to get the ball into your best playmaker's hands and allow him to make guys miss. And that's what Luther Burden's doing so far early on. And that offense is the reason to have a lot of hope for this team because the defense is good. We kind of had a feeling about that going into the season. 
I didn't know what to expect from the offense. I didn't know what to expect from Brady Cook with a healthy shoulder coming into this season. And I really didn't know what to expect to him going into the weekend because you mentioned it earlier because of the knee sprain that he was dealing with. And for him to come out, throw for over 300 yards, find his connection with Luther Burton early on, who had 10 receptions for 177 yards, that's really encouraging. And I think you're right. I think you can kind of dream about what the Tigers are going to be as we go along in this season. It's the first time they've gone to 4-0 and since 2013, and it does put you in a position where you can dream a little bit with this team. When does, when does the train stop? And what I mean by that is you've got Vanderbilt next, then you've got LSU, and then you've got, who is that? Uh, it was another, it was an unranked opponent before you take on Georgia. Does the, does the winning stop at LSU, or does the winning go all the way up until Georgia? Because after what I've seen in these last two games, the sloppy play is concerning, which is why I don't expect Mizzou to be favored against LSU. But the high-powered offense compared to the LSU defense that I've seen at times this season tells me that Mizzou could win that one, and Georgia's where that first loss comes in. I mean, so they'll be, they are favored by 14 at, at Vanderbilt. They yeah. should win that game this coming weekend. And then, as you said, they got, they've got uh, LSU at home, in Kentucky, 13, right. and then at Kentucky versus South Carolina, then number one Georgia. Where it ends, I would probably say, is LSU. You think it ends in LSU? I, I think and LSU that's a home clearly, game that they just stated is sold out, and they moved it to an 11 a.m. kickoff. Yeah, 11 a.m. on ESPN on Saturday, October 7th. I, I think it's because LSU's a better team, and I think Georgia's a better team. But I did say this earlier. You know, we, we talk, I feel like it's every year going into a Missouri Tigers football season. That Kentucky game, South Carolina, and Arkansas game, those three games are always swing games that define the season. Those cannot be swing games. They, they should not be viewed as swing games anymore. They should be viewed as... We got to go into Kentucky. We got to take care of business. When we host South Carolina, we got to take care of business, beat them. When we're at Arkansas, we got to take care of business and beat them. Your top 25 team now, those are no longer swing games. Those need to be wins. The swing games are going to be Florida and Tennessee now, who are at the back end of the top 25. But yeah, I, I would say, I, I think it, I still am sticking with nine wins, is what my expectations are. They haven't really changed much after the weekend win against Memphis. I still think they're probably going to lose to LSU and Georgia. That's probably the expectation. Hopefully you find a way to beat them. Maybe you can come up with something to beat those two teams. And then I think there's one more loss that we're not expecting somewhere on the schedule. And maybe they lose one of those two flip games to Tennessee and Florida. So eight, nine wins. Now that we're at 4-0, and is there a number that results in a disappointing season for the, car, for the uh, Tigers? Because like, seven wins would be disappointing for how you started and how you ended, right? Because if you win seven this season, that means you only win three of these final, what is it, eight games? Yeah. I, like that would be eight win. And see, the hard part and the reason I ask this is because you're making progress because it's been six wins for this Tigers team that we've been watching and saying like, okay, when's it going to get better? Seven is an improvement. But I feel like you, you've got to win now that you've started off 4-0 and oh, at least eight. I think that's fair. I think eight should be probably what the target okay. is because I think seven would be underwhelming, especially because like you look at Vanderbilt, that's gonna, that should be a win. So then you're at five, and that would mean, to your point, then down the stretch you only win two more games in games that should be winnable, hosting South Carolina and hosting Tennessee and Florida, though those are two decent teams. Those are very winnable football and Your games. offense is better than those teams. Yeah, so I, I think you're right. I think if you win seven now, it would be disappointing. Yeah. I could hear the argument on eight, but I think where the program has been, where it's been oh, absolutely. back-to-back six, to six, six and six seasons, I think eight wins would be a massive step forward for this program. And Drink has shown, we've talked about it, he's bringing in another good recruiting class going into the next season as well. So I think eight wins yeah. is probably where you I would draw the line. Say That's where they probably, at 
worse should be. Yeah, you're ranked. You're four and zero to start a season in two thousand since two thousand and thirteen, and you've got some high powered players on the offensive side. Eight wins is is the goal right now for this team, and people should be excited if they do get to that. We'll be back tomorrow. BK will be back with us. Grant Francis doing an outstanding job as always, helping us out. He and I will be on the Blues broadcast tomorrow, starting at six o'clock. Fast lane coming your way next here on one hundred and one ESPN.